Let's drop the green flag on this episode of The Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. This episode brought to you by the Jesse Combs Foundation as a donation from The Talent Tank and the Pemberton family. TikTok, TikTok, here we go. King of the Hammers, Hammers Week is right around the corner. We've got another installment of the Talent Tank here today. As you clicked on this episode, you see who it is. We've got defending and three-time King Jason Shearer in the house. What's up, Jason? What's up, Wyatt? How's it going? First off, I'm enamored with you. I think you're an amazing driver. I've always been intrigued by your attention to detail and how serious you take each little aspect of the race and how you break it down. I've seen enough about you to see that. Funny enough, I've actually never met you. We've never met in person. Seems insane. Isn't it crazy? It's like, uh, I think I know you, but it's like internet know you, you know, because we see everything we do, but I've never actually met you in person. So, you know, here we go. <laughs> I've seen you from like across the fire pit or across Hammertown or been in driver's meetings with you, but actually we've never, and it's not that you're not an approachable guy. You're a very approachable guy. It just hasn't happened. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll have a chance, but it's definitely, uh, it's wild because you know, I've watched you get, I've watched you race, you've watched me race. We've been to all the same events and it's just one of those things where, you know, the circumstances didn't play out, but I'm sure, you know, maybe we'll just keep running into each other now after saying that. Right. 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 Well, you say you've seen me race, but I've seen you win. I don't have that part. You have won and won and won again. Maybe not as much as Jason Berger. Yeah. Yeah. Berger, the winningest co-driver in, in ultra four history, right? That guy. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. So is the pressure on right now for you as we are inside the three week window to show up in uh, Johnson Valley? Um, yeah, there's pressure. I mean, it's, it's, it's inevitable. Just there's a, a mountain of logistics. There's obviously personal pressure we put on ourselves to perform in a certain level, but at the same time, I think, you know, the 2018 win, or I guess it was a, uh, sorry, yeah, the 2018 win and 2019 win, whatever they were, they were the monkey off our back too, because it had been 10 years before, you know, since between wins and to kind of have that feeling like we did it once when there wasn't as much competition, but can we do it again when it's like a real, you know, sport and everybody's out there vying as hard as they can. I think that was the one where you're like, okay, cool. And we've now with the three of them, it feels like we're in that elite company with Shannon and, and, you know, I mean, it just, it felt good. So I feel like we've got the pressure of, wanting to always be our best, but not necessarily the pressure of like proving it to anyone else other than ourselves. Yeah. Your first win was in 2009 and I know we're going to certainly go into your racing pedigree here in a little bit, but it was, it was the, the genesis of ultra four was 4,400 had not even been created at that point. 4,400 actually didn't get named until August of that year. So it was pre even the naming of classes. That was back when Dave said there was only going to be one class. So I think the first time I raced an event where it was 4,400 was probably with Dave when we did Vegas Torino in his car in 2010. And I think we won that. So it was kind of cool, but it was so early. There wasn't a series, you know, it was an event and that was it. There was no other events. And then the ones that came up right after that were uh, parlayed onto some other series event. It was like, we were also there with someone else. We weren't going to do standalone stuff. So it's a long time ago. Again, congratulations on 09, but really what you've done here in 18 and 19, and definitely that's going to get the deep dive. We're going to put it on the microscope, but your team has pulled off some amazing stuff and you have pulled off some amazing stuff behind the wheel. Well, thanks. It's not, it's not just me, man. It is definitely a lot of people that have made it happen. Um, 
that was sure a cool time back then. You know, that was that era where we switched to the transition away from just the traditional rock calling to the what is now Ultra 4, King of the Hammer stuff was, you know, it's kind of interesting that time frame, right? Like going and building a car for the Hammers was pretty outside the box. And, you know, thankfully Shannon, you know, Shannon and Nick and Don Campbell, like it was a really cool experience because they didn't just teach me, they didn't just build a car. Don and, you know, Nick and everybody, they took the time to teach me how to build the stuff. And so then we were, you know, able to do it. And, and that, that little transition right there was like, okay, I love building it. I just didn't know how. And it allowed us to, to, you know, go do all this. So I owe everything to those guys for sure. So as we come down to the wire to exactly load up and box up and roll everything out, ex- start executing uh, a plan, start executing logistics, what is your number one pain point today? Making sure we're ready for where five years from now is, you know, the doing it right today so that we're prepared for where the sport's headed and making sure that, you know, we're, we don't get past financially, performance-wise, you know, everything else that goes along with it. That's my biggest worry right now is that, you know, some guys are going to hit this. The sport's about to explode. And I hope we're there for the ride. That's that's what I'm worried about. I hadn't even pondered this segue in so early in the episode, but I do want to follow down this path that, you know, the car is only a fraction of the big picture. The driver's only a fraction of the big picture. Marketing's only a fraction of the big picture. You know, collectively, they're this big picture, but you're absolutely right. I mean, if you look back the 2009 timeframe and looking forward, no one would have envisioned where we would be where we are today. I co-drove in 2008 and I was the last guy standing at the campfire that night before the race. I might be the first guy in bed the night before the race now. Like I could have, I, I've switched that much, but it shows you that it went from fun and games to like, it means a lot to go win that race. And it's not just you. It is important to your sponsors. The people who make those parts take their pride in building the best product because they want it to win. And everything, everybody on your team that makes the car perfect so that you can go out there and perform, all those people that are involved in it, it, it is it's a turned into a professional sport. Oh, it's beyond, I think it's beyond professional. I mean, it's uh, several hundred thousand dollar cars, borderline, you know, there's, we've seen some cars that have come out that have really reached up there in price. But again, the, the, the car is the cheap part. Yeah. If you, if you, uh, if you add up the man hours and, and you look at it that way and, 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 you know, it's like one of those things, I mean, literally I went to bed last night pondering a little crack in the chassis and I'm like, I wonder why it cracked right there, you know? And then I'm like, Oh, I got it. Uh, I bump, the bump stop pad is so dented in, it's not hitting at the same time. And it's like all those hours of thought that are going into the racing and stuff shows you <laughs> how much like mind share has gone into the sport. And it's crazy because it started on pirate 20 years ago, you know? And it's like, okay, cool. Here we go. <laughs> and that's the part where I was going with you and the passion is coming out of your eyes. I can see it. It's, it's what keeps you up at night. It's what makes you wake up in the morning and drives you like you are. I love that. Like you came out really fast. Like this is, <laughs> this is the animal that I have harnessed within inside me that I have to go prove it every single day. And that's that. Why did do this and, and why? Yeah. And I think that's what I've fallen in love with. I mean, the race is rad, but the race is just proof of all the other hard work, right? It's the, there was a great segue, you know, years ago in the sport where guys like Easy Rick, 
they said stuff like, well, you think that's a great idea. You'll find out on Friday. And it was like, you're right. You know, so all year long, all your ideas and your thoughts, whether it's setting up better communications between the pits or working on your fuel systems or whatever it is, it comes down to if you think you are better about it, you'll find out on Friday when you're testing against every other person out there and you're or put to the test, I'd rather, against every other person that's had another 364 days to think about it. And that is a badass thing to think about. You know what I mean? Like how everybody there is putting in their all their effort into it and who's got the best mousetrap. Oh man, you're reminding me. My father, he cracks me up. He will, he will, he likes spreadsheets. So he will do a gear, you know, going through the gear calculator and the shift calculator on our land speed car. He'll, he'll go through it and then he'll send it to me like, you should be able to do, based on that drag coefficient, that you should be able to do 282 miles per hour. And that's going to be good enough to be five miles over the record. You'll go to impound. And I'm like, man, dad, that sounds amazing. Go ahead and just mail that in for me. Just email it to them and see if they'll just send us that trophy. Just give us the record. We proved it on paper. And then he'll That's right. Yeah. He'll call me. You by. still have the race. It's not just around the campfire that you're like, well, we won. Right. <laughs> go prove it. And yeah, exactly. Using, you know, Rick, Rick is an example. Rick is a, a keen one on that. <laughs> just say, well think that's a good idea. And I've heard him say that and read him say that. And yeah, man. So kind of my hook here is, are you going to be the three-time king? Like three time in a row, that would mean you'd be the four-time king. Do you think you're going to be that guy this year? Honestly, I think for the first time, I mean, somebody will have to dethrone us right now. And that can be a $2 wire connector because it's happened to us in the past. But we've got every other aspect of the program pretty much... I mean, like, wouldn't everyone want more power in a faster car? And yeah, but with what I think it takes to win the race and what I think we need to do from a personal preparation on working out, training, having our pits ready, having the right crew chief with the right guys underneath him as mechanics so that each person's responsible for things so the car comes out of there ready to go, my co-driver being as dedicated or more dedicated than I am almost to where we know what we need to do to perform having the right tires, the right shocks, the right wheels, the right brakes, the right everything that needs to be there from the performance side, spending the time down there. I mean, I've been down there. I've been testing. I've been driving. I've been working on it. I've been a little distracted doing some other stuff, which was fun with like the Ford guys doing the Bronco deal down in Mexico for the thousand. And we're going to talk about that. And yeah. And I mean, seat time, seat time though, right? Like it's, it's, it all crosses over the more time you're in the dirt, the better, I think. And all those little things, if somebody wants to go out there and, and beat us, like I'm, I respect the heck out of it. Cause it's, I think, you know, there's always faster guys. Can they hold it together till the end? You know, I mean, I battled with Nick Nelson last year, Tom Ways two years ago. Tom, you're crazy fast. Nick, you're crazy fast. Lauren, you're crazy fast. You got to still finish. You know, it could be us next year that has like, well, we just went a little too hard, but I think we know the formula to keep it under control. Like, don't get yourself at 180 beats per minute, wasting yourself away for that pass in the desert 32 minutes into a six and a half hour race. You know, go all the way to the finish. Hey, I would have been okay if you spoke about yourself in third person there and been like, and Jason's really fast. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I will say this. I believe that there's a there's at least 10 guys actually pushing probably towards 20 at this point where it's everyone's race to lose. Like, exactly. That's where it is. And I think you you have proven time and time again that you have a clear head under pressure and no one's doubting that. I was just seeing, want to see what your reaction was to being asked if you wouldn't win. I mean, I think odds are you were up there. There's on any given day, there's, I think, at least 15, if not borderline on 20, that it could be any of y'all. 
I agree with that. You know, you get guys like Cameron you were talking about a second ago. It's crazy. They're going to show up in a car that is badass and he can pick lines like the dude can drive. Like, I, you know, I think dirt biking is a great segue. Look at Randy Slauson. I mean, all the guys that had dirt bike experience, they see a line that you just you have to if you want to be able to make up something on, you know, make it up something on your dirt bike and that throttle control that goes along with that line you know, on clutch control on a bike and everything, but just that, that patience to hold that and then give it power when it needs it, not too much and break the tires free and all the stuff that goes along with that little finesse Cameron has, and he's going to hop in a car. He hasn't been on the list of those 10 guys, dozen guys, 12 guys, whatever yet. And all of a sudden here's another guy. I think that's how I felt two years ago. I was like, Paul Horschel, holy crap, this guy's fast. Like, and he built a badass car and he's an incredible fabricator, not to mention a super nice guy. Every year, more people are coming in and all the other sports, they're all falling out, you know, and this is the sport where everyone's headed. Yeah, we've seen the compression in NASCAR. We've seen the compression in circle track. We've seen it, the decline of drag. We've seen it kind of everywhere in even straight up desert racing. It's also contracted as well. But Ultra Fours continue to push and push and push and get bigger and bigger. Each class has gotten bigger this year. I heard Dave reading off during the live show the other night, the starting orders or the qualifying orders. But the UTVs was insane. How many UTVs they have going? That's just, uh, that's absolutely bonkers. And like, it's so cool because, you know, when we were working with companies and it was sort of smaller, like the sport, it was a tough thing to be like, hey, is it cool if we get a discount on some of this stuff? But, you know, we've grown into it. And now it's like I call over to Sparco and he's like, we don't have any seats. Apparently, everyone in the world is racing a UTV this week, you know, this next. And you're like, oh, it's crazy. But how cool Because you can go buy a UTV, do some mild mods to it and go race King of the Hammers. And like, I think some of them are going to be like, holy crap, what do we get ourselves into? But it's still like so cool that it's obtainable for anyone to go do. And then you still have a fun car for the rest of the year after that. You can go play. You know what I mean? Absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt, the availability and the accessibility of what Dave Cole has put together with Hammer King and the Ultra Force series with all the different classes from stock class to pro mod to either you can go on to Race Desert or go on to Facebook or any number of places and find used cars for sale, find your way into a, a car, find your way into racing. Go have a new one built. There's a ton of people that are making cars. Yep, really good ones. Either, you know, cookie cutter, talking about Randy Rods guys, you know, joke about the cookies or, you know, full custom cars like what, like yours, going to guys like Trout and company or going down to uh, Gilbert, Arizona and talking to Campbell's into what their uh, their specific recipe is. Tribe and, and, I mean, there's so many right now that are building cars that are good enough to win without a your question in mind. And it comes down to tuning, which is something that we should talk about because we have a really good friend on our team, Ben Bauer, and he's been building this car that he's been working on for a dune car for fun for I kind of feel like for as long as I've known him, he's been building the same car. And it's one of those deals where like we, the other night I talked to him, and I said, you know, I think you need to finish it and then go out and worry about tuning on it and making changes later. Because if you keep trying to wait for the technology to come around that you want for the build and you don't just get out there and race it, it's really tough, you know? And and I think that like the UTVs, it's cool because you can just go buy one, do the mods to it with any of the builders. The Ultra 4 cars are a little tricky because it's like, what do you build right now? You know, I mean, Eric Miller's car, one of the baddest cars on the lake bed, but do you build a solid axle car or do you go build an IFS car? You know, and it's like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Eric's there in the rocks, we're there in the desert. The IFS cars are a lot of work to maintenance and Solid axles are a lot less cost and prep. I mean, there's so many things going on, but tuning, I think, is the differentiator right now. So the guys that are putting in the effort 
in getting everything dialed in. And Eric's out there working on it. You know, it's that's why he's fast. And I think all those guys that are fast, they're putting in the hours that you don't see behind the scenes. You know, I talked to uh, Jeff McKinley the other day, Iron Man. Oh, yeah. And he was down. He switched over to Fox and he was down there and, and he asked me, you know, tell me about this. Is it really worth it? And all the kind of stuff that he's going through to tune. And I was like, you, you call me when you leave there. You're going to meet Mike Kim and you're going to go, oh, my God, I feel so. Many. And he called me. He's like, you've been cheating. <laughs> you've been cheating all this time. You know, I'm like, well, I told you it was better. You know, that effort, though, that goes into that tuning is brutal. It's like going to the hammers and being ready for a race that didn't exist. And all you're doing is going out there and driving stuff around until, you know, you figured out a way to, that you want to make changes or what you want to do to make it better. And uh, a lot of hours go into that stuff, you know, that you don't see. And that's, I think those are the guys that are excelling, you know, in my opinion. I mean, we just saw Waze just came out of Johnson Valley. He just spent a good amount of time down there testing tuning out of the uh, the laser nut compound. And I love Tom. That place is badass, by the way. I don't know if you've been there, but it is badass. I went down there uh, twice, two years ago, just uh, to talk to Chris Cabrera. Chris Cabrera was working for Cody at the time on race prep stuff. And I swung by there, met Cody and stuff. I think Cody, when he and I talked to... Uh, a while back, uh, we talked in the fall a uh, couple times. He didn't realize he didn't put me and that guy that he'd met in his together. Like he, it took some time, and then he's like, "Oh man, I do, you know, okay." Uh, but yeah, well, I'll certainly be down at Laser Laser Town this year a little bit. That's it is a fascinating place. I was able to uh, spend the night there uh, last month, and you know, <laughs> it is so well finished out like his idea and his concept behind it and everything at first it seems crazy to have like just a bunch of containers on like a bunch of i-beams and then because i saw it during construction and i was like wow you know it looks a little like it's gonna be cool i guess but like maybe a motorhome would have been easier right and then walk the door and you're like oh my gosh this is as nice as like 99 percent of people's new homes and or better. I mean, I didn't want to say that, but it's probably better than most people's houses, right? You walk in and it's like warm and the fireplace is rolling and there's a big screen TV and everyone's hanging out at the couch. And I'm like, damn, Cody, this is sweet. And he's like, and you can take as long a hot shower as you want because we have like a crazy amount of water on the well and we got an insta hot heater. So just take a long shower and you're like, at the hammers, you take a shower, you know. <laughs> so it's a pretty cool getup that he's got over there, and um, he was nice enough to host us too. And we came down to test; that was really cool of him. So he's a, he's got a cool cool pad. I'll say that. Yeah, they didn't let me pass the shop. That was it was the padding. <laughs> that, that was as far as I made it. The Dave and Gerald's place is cool too. I don't know if you've been there, but that is like the compound of all compounds for testing. Um, pretty cool. They used to. <laughs> Well, I don't even remember which cartel it was, but that used to be like a strip where they're flying, you know, the cartels were flying drugs in and out of there. To the hammers? Yeah. Yeah. I guess there's some pits out there next to Dave's shop where the, they uncovered them where there wasn't anything in. They were empty, but. Yeah, that's cool thing. But that's a cool spot over there he's got too. And it's so nice because it's like really easy to get access to it from the road. You know, if you want to go and test and have a whole group of people down there, test, you know, A to, you know, A, B bunch of parts. It's such a great spot because you can throw your stuff on the lift and go up and down and make the changes and then just run right back out into the desert. And you're like in a huge warehouse. It's huge. That place is, is massive. massive. Yeah. Well, we have uh, jumped around a little bit here, but we're going to dig into uh, the actual interview itself and get into your head and get into who you are and your past and everything. I think some people know who you are. Some people don't. Like I said, I've, I've known who you are for 15 years, but we've actually never Matt, which uh, again still cracks me up. But you, uh, you're California guy, Northern California. You like East Bay. 
and you currently live in, it's eluding me right now, Danville? Danville, yeah. You get it right. Which, I mean, I kind of grew up in this area, so Danville, Dablo, it's kind of like a sister town to Danville. It's not like uh, very far away. I grew up, I mean, as a little kid over in the, you know, Oakland-ish area, and then Lafayette, Orinda, and then out here, and kind of stayed here my whole life. A little bit of college, went away, went to San Diego, my buddies took me. And my uncles took me down to Baja, and I was hooked on that instantly. What age was that? I was in my, I was like, you know, 19, 20, and I was playing college baseball and trying to make it to class every once in a while. And uh, it was really fun. We had a good time. And then, uh, you know, shortly thereafter, my dad called and said, hey, he had quit his, his like, kind of corporate life job of like 23 years. And uh, right when I was about probably 16 or 17 and started his own company, and I would help him. I would spend my whole summer working for him and everything when I wasn't playing baseball or whatever. And I always liked working for him. Like I, I enjoyed the work and I liked to learn the stuff and everything. So I uh, had a lot of fun doing that. I actually worked since I was like 12 with him. His other job too, I'd, I'd go down and clean equipment and everything for him. So spent my summers and all the breaks and everything. I went to work with him every day. I never, my mom didn't like say, oh yeah, you just stay home and play PlayStation like the kids now, but I would just go to work, you know, and, and I always loved it. So you know, when I moved back here, when I was going to college, I came back because I ne- he needed help and kind of dropped out of school. But at the same token, it was cool because I was making money and we were building a company together. And that's your current company, Pelican Group? Yep. You know, 26 years of working with that stuff, which kind of blows my mind, but pretty cool. You know what I mean? It's it's pretty cool that it's all grown and, and done and what it's done. And then do you just have uh, the one sibling? Do you have Casey? Is he it? Yep. That I know of. Yep. You know, and then Casey, Casey's a racer as well, or was a racer as well. I last I saw, he acted like he's fully retired, but he had a really, really bad wreck recently. Yeah, I don't think he should get back in a race car ever, but I don't know if he ever stopped being a racer, right? He was actually a racer before I was. He was racing go karts. I always loved them, but I never had any real reason to go race them. And I was my girlfriend had a, a girlfriend, and that girlfriend's friend was a dirt bike rider and our weekends were spent dirt biking i'd rather go dirt biking dirt bike riding with him uh, he was a pro racer and it helped kind of show me what a pro race like life was like you know he didn't maybe for better or for worse he didn't go home and drink a bunch of beer and hang out because he would have to go like mountain bike after we'd go dirt bike riding and he'd clean all the bikes and it was meticulously organized his shop was like spotless and you could like eat off the floors in there literally um and he was careful about what he ate and and you know he was totally into the fitness and he raced well into like his late 30s which is pretty unusual still winning gncc championships and stuff and so you know he's really good and it was cool to ride with guys that were really good because it it showed you you know maybe what you're capable of faster than if you were just riding with your your friends you know yeah you up your game i started doing the trials bikes i got hooked on trials bikes i really liked the skill set it took to ride them oh all balance right yeah so you know my brother's racing go-karts and i started competing in trials which is sort of an obscure thing you know it's not like it might actually be more popular today because guys like Cody Webb and stuff have kind of like put a good light on like a trials background going into hard enduro and stuff. But at the time, it was like kind of a, a different sport. You know, it was like almost like it's something that happened. And it was popular in the 70s and 80s and then kind of just fell off. And here I was out riding them and I loved it. And so I was competing in the Sacramento pits. I got a call from a friend of mine that was in our Jeep club, Bob Rice. He said, would you like to uh, spot for me at one of these first rock crawling competitions of all time? Because you understand how the gates work from trials competitions and a dab is like a backup and all the stuff. And I'm like, 
yeah, let's go. So you know, we bomb off to like Las Cruces, New Mexico or whatever. Now all of a sudden I'm in four wheel vehicle competitions. Like, you know, with my, like same with my brother. Yeah. You're jumping way ahead of where. <laughs> oh yeah. No, it's all I good. Love, I was just, I was just going to say, it, so though. Casey, Casey though was doing really good in the go-karts. Like he was killing it. Yeah. And you know, I would go to those races with him and these kids were amazing. And it turned out it was like he was racing with Scott Speed. Uh, AJ Allmendinger, you know, and, and my brother and uh, Mamo Gidley and like you, he was racing all the top guys that all went somewhere in their sport. Like they all made big careers out of racing. They all went to NASCAR at some point. Yeah, I guess that's true too. Well, Mamo did more road race stuff. Scott made it to F1. Yeah. You know, Allmendinger. Uh, I mean, everyone's heard that name. Yeah. They probably yeah. didn't think about it until they just heard it. And they're like, oh, I do know that name. Yeah, so Casey was really doing well, and, and it was really cool. And then he stopped. Like, once you're done go-kart racing, there's not, like, another level until you get – unless you get picked up and go do something else. So did a little stock car stuff and that, like, on the Southwest Tour crap, but never, like, got – anything and so that was it that was kind of the end of that until he got back into the utvs he wanted to go racing he did good dude he won the championship for the first year he won like a bunch he of races yeah yeah the first time i met your brother was uh I've, i'd seen him just like you but we actually had a chance at one of the tribe parties in oklahoma and got to stand around with him and i want to say there was fireball involved there was it might have been goldschlager but there was something involved and he was a riot he, he's a good dude He's a good dude. He he definitely knows how to have fun. And he, he's always been that way. He, he lights up a room with fun. You know what I mean? And it's like, oh, my God, here comes Casey. And it's like, you're not sure whether to celebrate or to be like, oh, man, I'm going to be hungover tomorrow. You know, but he's a lot of fun. So going into nationals this year, he was in a he was in a pretty good position. And then he just had a, a bad accident in, in practice, right? Yeah, I think nobody had jumped the double yet. He was unsure of what it was going to take to clear it, and he just came in way too hot. I think his car had a ton more power than he thought. He thought he needed to stand on it. I mean, it's, it is what it is. Like, accidents happen. I've crashed. I've caught the wall with, like, two inches of tire on the side and thought, oh, it'll be fine, and double flipped as soon as it touched the ground because you're like, damn, you know? So. I know it happens and it is part of the sport, I think, as you start to try to be, you know, you push, you push and mistakes happen. I mean, I've, I've spun the tires at the face of a jump because they had just watered it and come up short on the double and just rip the whole front end of a car out. And you're like, oh, what a bummer. You know what I mean? But you do it and then you realize that like, okay, that's part of racing and you just, mistakes happen and, and you move on. His had a super big effect on his entire life, you know, and that's not necessarily the normal crash. It just got him wrong. And I mean, dude, he had every piece of safety equipment, all the best stuff. His C7 vertebrae was exploded to where it was like almost an inch apart. It wasn't like it was like a minor crack or one of those things. So he had a triple fusion and a cage installed. And he is still, you know, a little slow to recover. But the thing is, is he's got feeling and control of his legs and muscles and everything else. The nerve damage that he has is minor. It's going to get better, better and better. Probably never be 100%, but at least he can continue to strengthen the other muscles and get his body back into the same position he was before. So he'll be fine. I think that's the most important thing. And I've been trying my best to uh, motivate him to stay on track to get all this stuff going. Like the other day, I was like, dude, sell your Dodge. Sell your, sell your Ram truck, right? You don't need it anymore. You're not towing a trailer. And go get a Raptor and go Raptoring with us, right? And so I told him that. So cush. 
so yeah, good. and it's so fun because you can still get out and go do stuff, but you're taking your family now. And so, you, you know, it might not be racing, but it's a great switch because you're going out, you're still flying up and down fire roads, but you're not going to wreck your Raptor out. Like you're just not going to do something stupid, right? So you kind of take it easy, but you still have a really good time. And then, you know, you go and you get your family involved and everyone has a blast. And I tell all this to him. And then the next thing you know, Lance Clifford, my like brother-in-law-ish thing through him marrying, you know, the same family, like Renee, Lance's wife and Marcy are sisters and the whole thing. Oh, yeah. I'm like, Lance, you got to get a Raptor, dude. And so he goes out and he buys one right before Casey. So now we all have them. Waze is like, all right, first trip's where? And I'm like, all right, here we go. So it's, it's awesome. You know, it's I mean? go fast leaf looking. Yeah, it, it's, and it's fun as can be. You know what I mean? I am going to jump ahead because we are talking about the Raptors right now. So you did a trail of missions with uh, all those guys and went down with Cam Steele's deal. But the yep. guys he has on, like, Casey, was Casey Curry on this year? Such a good time with him. Yep. And you guys go down to Baja and then Cam has just a path laid out like a... Well, and I got super lucky because... I think Cameron wanted to vet us out before we went on the trail emissions thing. So I got invited to the trail emissions pre-run. So believe it or not, Cameron actually does a pre-run of trail emissions to make that path for everyone. So that when he shows up with 76 people in Mexico, he's not like wondering if the road connects. So he runs the whole thing first and puts it all together. And that was actually videoed as well. It's actually, I think, on YouTube right now. If you look it up, like it's a presented by BFG Trail Emissions pre-run or TOM pre-run. Had a blast. You know, it's cool to take the racers out of racing and go find out what they're like as personalities. Like I've been hanging out with Casey Curry for 15 years at events. I never really knew him that well. But when it's his wife and his kids and you're sitting by the pool or you're on the beach or, you know, you're working on each other's stuff or whatever out there. You're real. Everybody's you get to real. find out. And there's been times when I thought like, oh, Casey, you know, this and that. And he turns out he's just such a good dude. You know, like everybody is, is so nice to hang out with. You know, Ken Neal from Bulletproof and get, got engaged to Donna. And it was like, I feel like part of their family after being there for that whole thing, you know, and, and, and all the parts of it. Hanging out with uh, the Wagners and, and, you know, Lindsay is so sweet. And then all the kids got along, Charlie and my daughter Hayden and then Lacey and my son Jackson and everybody, they're all playing. And I think there was 20 plus kids there under 18 and they were all friends and like everybody looked out for each other. It was awesome. All I know is I was laying on my couch. College football was on. We were between two games that I wanted to watch. I think the weather here in Houston was really bad that day. Zero productivity. And I'm flipping through channels and there is... Cody Wagner's head, three foot big on my TV. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, whoa, what is this? And then they immediately, as I'm like really stopping to pause, you pop up on the screen. I'm like, well, what is what is this show? Transmissions. <laughs> all right, all right. So Cam Steele, I sent him an email like five, roughly five years ago, maybe six years ago, right after I got my pre-runner done. I sent it because I wanted to go. I'd seen it. I didn't realize how exclusive it was at the time. So maybe this time, uh, maybe when I see him out, they ain't resist time. I'll be like a bit of leverage. Like, listen, man, let me bring my Chevy. You know, I want to, I want to go throw down some whoops. I want to go to Mexico. Let's go. Let's go. Let me go. Let me go, please. It it was quite an honor to be invited to go just to be able to do it. And and I'll say this, like my wife, I think at first she was a little apprehensive. She's like, we're going to go to Mexico for 10 days with the kids and stay in a different place every day. And we're going to drive like from seven or eight in the morning, which is like maybe six in the morning with Cameron's schedule to, you know, 10 o'clock at night and on nights. And, you know, are you sure about this? Like Jackson's six years old. And I'm like, come on, we got to do this. It's going to be so put it that way. (laughs) 
we get down there and we do this trip and I'm like, what do you think of it honestly? And she's like, it was epic. And I'm like, yeah, that's how I felt too. So epic was her words and she hasn't said that about too many things in life. So she reserves that for stuff that's really special. She loved every aspect of it. So yeah, it, was, it was really cool to be part of it. I really want to go again this year. So, you know, hopefully we can win another hammers and get the invite. <laughs> Great time to talk about your wife, Dana. How did you yeah. guys meet? So when I was a kid, you know, it was, every childhood's a little different, right? My, my parents, uh, they split up when I was just kind of finishing up high school and they sold their house, but I was still there. So I ended up moving into Dana's parents' house for like six months and she was five years younger than me. So if I was like maybe 17, 18, she was really only like, you know, 12 or 13. I never would have like thought about like ever anything. It was just, she was a kid and she was super cool and nice. And we all hung out, but she was just a kid. I remember I was going down to Pismo beach to have some fun about six or seven years after that. And I ran into her parents at Costco when I was picking up stuff and they said, Oh, Dana's at Cal Poly. She'd probably love to go to Pismo. You should call her. And I was like, all right. You know, and I almost felt maybe like obligated, like I should call her to be nice. And so I called her on my way down the quest to grade and I was like, Hey, I was headed to Pismo. And she's like, Oh yeah, I talked to my parents. I'd love to check it out. I haven't seen it yet. So she hadn't been to Pismo yet while she was going to Cal Poly. You know, I basically picked her up. Jeff Mello said I could drive his race Jeep out there. He had a cool little pro arena Jeep and uh, I got her in there and gave her a little uh, song and dance about scaring her pants off. And you know, if they'd stay off in the whole nine yards and the next thing, I know I'm out there jumping Jeff's Jeep, looking over, making sure she's scared, you know, in the air. And uh, that was it, though. We had a great time. Like we really we we were like knew our families, like everybody knew each other. So it was really natural and easy. And she's just like such a good person. She's, you know, back in school, getting her master's in architecture. She's really smart. She, you know, Cal Poly grad was doing construction management. So she understands like design and build and everything. And so, you know, she's really just a great partner in life and super fun. And in your corner, right? Just yeah. pulling for you. Yeah, totally. Great mom, too. You know what I mean? Our kids, she's always on it with all that stuff. I certainly couldn't do it without her. Well, I think that's exactly the key. It's like for all the, for every hour that you're in the shop prepping any race, not just King the Hammers, but for any race, I mean, it's a lot of hours in there. There's got to be that, that rock that's still handling all the business that needs to go on in the household. And it's some guys are lucky and, and find one early and some of them never find them. So sounds like, uh, you won here. You won on this one. For sure. Yeah. That's my, uh, my most prized asset. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, and then you guys, you guys have two kids, right? Yep. Yep. Two kids. Jackson just turned seven actually this week. And, uh, my daughter's 11 going on 17. So that's, that's always fun, but she's super cool. She's into horses. And when I say she's into horses, she's like a hundred percent into horses. Like I don't think that she talks about anything else ever. So, you know, all we do around here is horse train, work on horses, think about horses, get new stuff for horses. It is crazy. But I watched something happen with her and I went to one of the events and we got one coming up on Sunday. I went to one of the events and I was just sitting there and I saw her get her game face on and she got super like competitive. And I think like I've never seen it from myself. I just get that way. But she got that same way. And I was like, damn, I, I don't know if I'm happy or not that I passed that gene, you know, whatever it is, uh, that passion or drive or whatever it is. that's like, okay, all of a sudden you put in all your focus and all your effort into something and then you go out there and you try to perform. And she like won. And I was like, shit, you know, it's on. <laughs> 
I think that's like criteria for success. I think you, the fact that you can look at that and see that, I mean, that's, you know, she is her father's daughter, right? Yeah. A hundred percent. Yep. And, uh, and good, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad about it. The, the other, the flip side to it is like, you know, it would be uncool not to go chase your dream. So now I'm making sure I focus on, you know, all the stuff like we still drive around in kind of a beat up old race trailer. It's nothing fancy. We've never been like the guys that spend the money on all the cool stuff. She's got a feather light trailer, right? Like she's got all the oh, nice she's balling. You know? Yeah. She's, and it actually, you know, it's cool. Cause it's like, I want to make sure that, you know, she can go out there and have all the good stuff that, you know, you want to do and provide for your kids. Absolutely. I mean, and horses are not cheap. They're more expensive than race cars. Oh yeah. Uh, that one horsepower costs a lot more than the motor that's in the race car for the hammer. So, yep. Yep. It, but you know what? I mean, it's hard to put a value on them, you know, a, you want them to enjoy it and all the other stuff, but you got to get a good horse. So they're safe. And like the horse is capable of, of getting them out there to be able to win and all that stuff. So there's, there's a lot to that. You know what I mean? And just like in the race car, you spend all the time getting comfortable in the car and feeling what it'll do over, you know, X, you know, X size whoops or over climbing up X size boulder, up whatever wall. That's just with a horse. It's even, even more involved, you know, getting on that. I don't know if it's, I'm going to use the word unagi where it's your mind and their mind work the same. And, and, and when you get that point with that horse where you and it work the same and the horse's mind is thinking when you're, that is just beautiful to watch when they get in tune. Yeah, I agree with you. I actually really do enjoy going to it. You know, it's a good group of people that are out there as well. You know, it's funny because all these really passionate people, whether it's ultra four events and you meet all these cool people or it's, you know, the horse people who are super passionate about their stuff. They're all the same in that aspect. They're all super into their thing and they're really good. You know, it's really nice to be around them. Like you enjoy that entire aspect of the the culture of the of the events and the people that are part of it. Oh, I don't think we would do anything. I don't think you, I don't think you would be an ultra four if it had people that sucked. Yeah. No, I wouldn't. Yeah. Nobody would want to go. You know what I mean? Like, I think, you know, from my standpoint, I would have fun digging ditches if I was doing it with my buddies. Right. Me too. And Same. Digging ditches sucks. But I mean, <laughs> that aside, but you, you guys have some fun stuff that at least what I've seen on your social media over the years and, and pirate. But the thing that really intrigued me is you guys have some snow cats. <laughs> yeah, we got, we got, we have some fun up in the mountains, man. We, uh, we really do. I, you know, it's funny, my co-driver, Jason Berger, I didn't know that much about him until, and I, I, he actually bailed me out when we were going to Rubicon for my wedding in 2005. My brother had a, uh, a bearing seize up, a set 20 bearing on his Bronco set, you know, to seize. And he bailed us out because he had a press. And so I knew him, but I didn't, uh, I didn't really ride with him or do anything with him until we went snowmobiling together. And I had this cabin up there that was Dana's parents' cabin, you know, so we'd go up there my wife's parents, um, my in-laws, whatever. And we go up there from like 04, 05 year on. They've had that place. We subsequently bought one up the street and then we ended up becoming partners in it and, and staying in that one and renting out the other one. So we're all up there and they've got this really cool cycle snowcat. But Berger and I would ride snowmobiles pretty hardcore back there. And I learned what a great navigator he was. And we had bad stuff happen. Like Berger decided he wanted to cross a river and ride across it on its speed and try to make it to the other side. And he hit the bars when he hit the water, jumping off like a six foot ledge of snow. It like the, the impact was way greater than he thought. So he like chest slapped the bars and, and then oh. needed to go full throttle. But he had hit the kill switch with his chest. <laughs> 
So he was dead in the water and he looks over at me. He's all, help me. And I'm videoing it. And I'm like, and this is like video on a camcorder, right? This isn't like iPhone video. And I look at him, I'm like, oh, I hate you. And I just like drop the camera and jump in a river and we got to walk the snowmobile like back uphill and break down the snowbank from the water side so we could pull a sled out of the river. And uh, I looked over at him and I said, dude, I think we're in trouble. We're freezing cold. It's 25 degrees out and it's about to get dark and we're wet. We've been standing in water. And he's all, yeah, no, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pull the plugs. We're going to flip the sled over. We're going to pull it 20 times. We're going to put the plugs back in it. And if it doesn't start, we're going to jump on your sled and ride out together. Like, okay, well, you thought that all through before I'd even like gotten my panic on. Right. And I learned right there, the dude can handle pressure and has a plan all the time, no matter what's going on. From that day on, I knew when this thing came around, he'd be my co-driver. Thankfully, now we got a snowcat to bail us out when we get stuck back there in the backcountry, you know, right. sat phones and snowcats. You can do no wrong, you know? No, yeah. When you guys showed up with that snowcat, I was like, wow, how cool is that? What year is that thing? So that's an early 70s one. It was in the Calgary Olympics. It was pretty beat. And then I did a full resto on it. You know, it's a pretty simple drivetrain. Like it's a straight six and a C4 with like a pretty much a piece of equipment, like a tractor rear axle with like wet brakes in it and everything. There's there's nothing too fancy about it. And then they adapt all that stuff down. It looks like Dana 60 axle flanges in the rear, like an eight lug wheel that spins the tracks, right? But I foam filled the tires. Uh, my buddy Doug Kennedy rewired the whole thing. We put like a Rockford Fosgate subs and stereo in it and red lights on the inside and heaters and fans and then HID rigids all across the front and everything. It's like super fun to go out. It's got worn winches front and rear so you get stuck in it and you just pull it off the tree somewhere. We have a good time in it. Do we take a cord of firewood in the back? We pull it up to a dead tree in the forest. We dump, you know, some, some, incinerary devices into it to get it started and we burn that whole tree down out there and it takes about two days for the tree to burn down and so we keep riding back to it on snowmobiles to warm up when you're out there snowmobiling on that dead snag that we started on fire on friday night so it's good times wow that sounds fun i'm, I'm gonna have to self-invite myself uh, i need to yeah. get a sled and come out there and be like let's do this good stuff Jumping back to, uh, we talked about your your father's business, the Pelican Group, and you working for him all the way up from as a, as a very young kid. Finally, you know, when you left college, playing baseball. By the way, we skipped over baseball a little bit. What position did you play? First base. First base. Yeah, I was le- I'm left-handed, so I was sort of... Handicap. Can't be it short. You, you could either basically be a pitcher or first base. That's, you know, or I guess you could play right field or something. But yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it was... Uh, those were my, those, that was my sweet spot, man. I loved it. I absolutely like loved baseball. It was, uh, it was just like, uh, one of those things where that's what I wanted to do. And then, you know, somewhere in college and we played Cal Berkeley. And the funny part is my wife, Dana came to the game, played Cal Berkeley. And I watched a guy with a curve ball that I couldn't even tell where the ball was going to go. And it was like, damn, they're these guys that are hitting this are that much better. And I just didn't, I didn't think I was going to continue to get better enough to be able to play at that level. And it was like the realization. It's like, you know, when you go moto with an actual guy that that's a pro motocross racer and you get on the track with them and you think you're fast and you're like, damn, dude, the dude's like four corners ahead in a lap. And you're like, okay, you know, you're not going to be a pro motocross racer, you know, but that's that same realization that I had when I was doing it. And it was like, I just couldn't see that guy's, I couldn't even see it coming out of his hand. It was like, damn, I don't know where it's going to go. And that was pretty much when I knew I wasn't going to make it. I think everyone has that day if they're really serious about it. But it was the 
it's a sport I love and I love all aspects of it. So I love watching it. You know, my son's 12 and he plays on a select team, you know, year round baseball here in South Texas. And it's been so cool to watch him grow from, you know, five years old to now going through puberty and how his body has changed, but it's changed his, the way he swings or what he sees, or now he's, he's grown six inches in the last year. And so it's this whole, he was killing the ball. Now he's not killing the ball. Or when he's pitching, he's like kind of nimbly gangly. Cause he's like so much taller than, yeah, yeah. and he looks like a big, he looks like an, almost an adult. He's like five foot six, but he's not, I have to rein myself back and go, he's 12. Uh, so sorry, get off a tangent on that talking about. It. Well, no. And I mean, I'm passionate about that too, because it is, uh, it's interesting to watch him grow up. We got a kid that's on our team, you know, a, a dad, uh, Ben Ratto, his son's amazing. And it's like, he's getting drafted by high school. Schools are trying to recruit him to private schools. And you look at what they're doing. They've been playing year round for years. He's got personal trainers, you know, he's doing all the right things. He's massive. He's just like a beast for, you know, 12 or 13 year old kid. He's bigger than me in every way. And you're like, damn, dude, you know, and, and I don't think that he's going to have the same hiccups getting to the pro level that we did when it was just like, you know, you went and played your high school baseball season and they didn't have all the the leagues in the summer and the fall and everything else. You know, there was no fall ball when we were growing up. So they've got a better chance now of making it to that level. But you got to be all in if you want to make it today. There's no talent's not going to take you all the way. No, exactly. Well, thanks for letting me walk down that, uh, that, that little offshoot there. But about the Pelican Group and what you do there and what that business is because it's it's really cool. I mean, and I'd love to hear how your dad decided to say this is the business I'm going to get into when he started. That's a cool story. My my dad decided that he had a customer. It was Greyhound Bus Lines. He became really good friends with the guy who managed the program. Now, he did vending machines and amusement games, video games for the Greyhound Bus Stations. He did it for a big company, you know, Sacramento through Oakland, San Francisco, Stockton, San Jose. That was like his little territory. The guy at Greyhound's like, you do the best of anybody in the country. You, you have the best sales of any of the other terminals in the country. What's your secret sauce? And he said, well, I really know what everybody needs in these locations. Like, I know what you're, you know, I know exactly what, what games to put in the Greyhound clientele wants. You know, I know that you're this much military, this much cash, this much this. And the guy's like, that's amazing. Like, that really shows that you pay attention to what we need. And he said, could you come help me? I've got all these Greyhound terminals all over the country. Could you help me put the right stuff in all of them? And it gave him the idea to basically just go and become a management firm that goes out and puts in the right equipment based on the knowledge of what we have learned from the amusement business and the in the vending equipment you know side of it. That was our first contract. So Greyhound signed up my dad. He quit his day job and he went there and he literally went to every Greyhound terminal in the country and met with the local vendors. And he knew all these guys. He was on the state boards with all the associations and the you know knew all the different vendors that were good around the country. He gave the good guys the good business and put in better equipment and made Greyhound. He tripled Greyhound's revenue within three years on that category. And so they were super happy with him. And he said, well, this is a great thing, except I know that if uh, that contract ever decides to go a different way, I'd be left with nothing because I have one contract right now. So he diversified as much as he could. Payphones had just deregulated. And so we started installing our own payphones. He bought pay telephones and that's what I was doing. I was actually going out, pouring concrete, digging holes, pouring concrete, putting in anchor bolts, bolting down a phone and then climbing telephone poles and running conduit and electrical and all the stuff. I had a blast doing it. I've installed over 2000 payphones. And so, you know, for years I'd get up at 4.30 in the morning and go out and slam 
slam phones in and then go out and sell them to liquor store owners, gas station owners, do contracts with those guys. And it started off at like literally at the corner gas station guy until I found out, hey, there's a chain of gas stations. Hey, there's a chain of, of liquor stores. Hey, there's a chain of these markets. And the next thing you know, now I'm dealing with more of the corporate client, the C-store C-level executives within these chains. And I'm like, this is where the money's at. You don't want to go sell one gas station owner a contract. You want to go sell a hundred of these. It takes the same amount of time, but I get a hundred locations. So I kind of figured out, so then it was movie theater chains and I went in, you know, one category after another. And about the same time that we were rolling in that, my dad landed the Costco contract for vending. So we were, everything was just booming. It was super good. Dude, payphones died overnight, but we were just like, okay, what are we going to do? So we evolved the business into putting in digital jukeboxes. So at one point in the Bay Area here, we had 600 digital jukeboxes. We basically got every good bar in the Bay Area that we had, you know, that was out there. We had the jukeboxes in it. So we were slinging music and pool tables and all this stuff. It was super fun, except that it was stressful. That business was a little bit tricky because the bar owners wanted us to be able to do service. They wanted us to take calls until 10 o'clock at night. So we ran calls until midnight seven days a week including christmas and new year's and every holiday like it was oh man it was a it was a monster in a lot of ways so i sold it three and a half years ago um, my dad my brother and i all agreed like hey let's sell it to an employee that uh, you know to a group of employees and they wanted it and so they they bought it and they run it separately and we continued to grow and focus on the management side it's not huge you know we're still like it's still a small margin business it's still a lot of work it's still a lot of touch and it's not it's not easy, but we've grown into a lot of cool clients, you know, and, and watch them grow. Like we've had chains like the Dollar Tree stuff for, you know, years, Family Dollar, stuff like that. We just have we've had these like little chains and they've grown and expanded and it's helped our business with them. And probably two and a half years ago, we expanded into Canada doing the vending stuff up there. We're actually doing like micro markets, which are self checkout kiosks at all the Costco's all the way up through Canada, like all the way, you know, in every province, it's crazy. So it's fun. And I love that side of it too. You know, I, I like work and I like what we do and, but it's still a small company. We like 14 employees, super efficient, a killer team. Like I love all the employees. Like that's my number one priority. Families is right there, but like racing is second in my effects of what's important because that's a lot of people's paychecks. You know what I mean? And that's it's their families. Yeah. And yeah. Livelihood. And there's this responsibility. It's not just for you and your family. It's for you and all these other families are dependent on you. Right. And that's a different level of stress. Uh, the most people in this, most people in the world don't ever feel that or realize that or recognize that. But the small business owner, the non-corporate, the, he feels it every single day. Yeah. It's been this perfect balance for me over the years, too. I mean, ridiculous stress levels, literally like unfair to the human body. But I love the fact that I have stuff going on at work and I've got that. And then I can take that stress part of it and go focus a little bit on the racing and be able to balance that out with like a really passionate, like something that you really can go do. But it can be so easily overwhelming to get focused on the racing and then that makes you not feel good because you got all the work stuff behind you. So I have to do it the other way around where my outlet is to go do the racing because the work stuff is so important. And it's been a little tricky over the years, you know, and I've done a lot less racing than other people. And I, I commend them for being in the position that they've been able to say, you know, take the plunge, take the risk, just race full time. But I've never been in a position because I had the business first to ever make that kind of a choice. And that's okay. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. That's that's their thing. I mean, it seems like just watching you, you focus on nationals and you focus on King of the Hammers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know. And, Kill and, both of them, by the way. <laughs> Kill both of them. 
I really like the uh, I really like Baja, so I think I'm going to put that on my list of things I want to do. I I do want to race a trophy truck in Baja, like that's on my bucket list. I've been a co-driver in Baja, but I want to race the truck. I'm ready to do it and see what we got. Well, I think this is the perfect place to segue and start talking about your your early years in in off roading as we walk our way into how the king became the king. How'd you get into jeeping, man? How did that happen? Oh, okay. Pretty easy decision. Like what car are you going to go get when you're 16? And my buddy had that I was dirt biking with as a little kid had a, uh, had a Jeep. His parents had a Jeep and they would take us up to the Barrett Lake Jeep trail and we would ride our dirt bikes in and they would Jeep in and they would cook us hot tang. We couldn't drink beer, right? We were like 12. They'd make us hot tang and we'd sit there underneath the stars at Barrett Lake on the warm rocks of behind us in the cold air and the mountains up there and just like, you know, look up at the stars. So when it became time to figure out what kind of car I wanted to get, it was almost like a non-question. I was like, yeah, we should get a Jeep. What I didn't think we would be doing was the day I turned 16, we're out wheeling them like crazy and everything like normal kids. But then I was like, hey, why don't I tell my parents I'm spending the night at your house and you tell your parents I'm spending the night, you're spending the night at my house and we'll go to Rubicon this weekend. So we were 16 years old going through Rubicon <laughs> with no parents, like I no supervision. It. And like there was a couple of trips that we took that, that first summer where we went through the whole trail on Saturday and then turned around and went through the whole trail again a second time on Sunday. We loved wheeling, but we also didn't drink yet. So we didn't see the part of it where people would go up and hang out by the lake and kick their feet up. We just wanted to drive and drive and drive and drive and drive and drive, right? So we were just wheeling all weekend. It was great. But that was basically the start of the Jeep addiction and the wheeling addiction. Now, did you meet like Mellow during that time period? <clears throat> Mellow came around in about 95 or 96. I would say it's somewhere in that time frame. I had gone away to my first year of college and I had my Jeep and it got stolen at the dorm room parking lot, like just random, you know, gangs still in cars and they, they stole my Jeep and I'd gotten it back, I think. And I had it in pieces. I was going to rebuild it over like Thanksgiving break or whatever, and then come back in the summer and work on it. And Jeff came over, I think as a handyman to do some repairs around the house or something to weld up a gate, I think. And he saw the Jeep and he's like, dude, you got to come meet up with our Jeep club, Contra Costa Jeepers. And so I was like, okay, you know, like whatever. And I went and it, it became a whole group of like lifelong friends. And so, you know, I got into that. He was really the instigator of like, let's go do harder lines. Let's go do harder trails, but like, let's still have fun and make it like not crazy. And he was like on that cutting edge all the way back then. Now he was barrel racing in the Jeeps, which I don't, you know, it was cool as shit. I don't know why they don't do it, but literally like barrel races in your Jeep. And he had all these trophies on the wall and then they got into the tough truck stuff or pro arena, whatever you want to call it. And they were doing all that. And I didn't really get into that. I wasn't into the racing stuff. I, I did crash his once. I always remember I, I landed it off a jump and I was, that was probably like one of the first times I ever jumped a truck and I landed so hard, it nailed the front frame horn into the ground. And I like bit the end of my tongue off in the helmet. And I was like, Oh my God, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't a good first time out. You know, he was always, he was always a ton of fun with that stuff. And so mellow has been a great, a great guy on all accounts, you know, and we've had so much fun over the years you know yeah i remember seeing like back in the pirate era of you guys working or prepping out of uh or just wrenching out of his barn he had a barn yeah he's yeah the barn is still alive and rocking his barn has oh if the walls could talk like it's got some of the best memories of all the stuff in it we've had some cool stuff happen like 
when the rock crawling stuff like went down, I had my CJ, the same Jeep that I got when I was 16. I started competing in it. And then they changed the rules a little bit. They opened up too many changes and I didn't want to cut up my Jeep because I was like, eh, it's turning into a buggy event anyway. Like, let's build a buggy. So I had Mike Schaefer build a buggy. And, and he, was in, he was in Oakland at that point, right? Yeah. Well, I guess. Let me think about that. No, he was in Reno at the time or Carson. He was up in Carson City. So he's down here now. He's down there now. Okay, no, no, no. Yeah, he grew he was up in Mount down. Yeah, he yeah, was he in Mount House, here. right? Yeah, and you know that it's all. I don't know why it's foggy. He had a different shop. He moved a couple times up in the Reno Carson area. Nonetheless, he built this buggy, and I went out there and I wanted to compete in it. And like that was the year, you know, or whatever happened. I ran one series like Cal Rocks, which I was stoked on. It was local and it was super fun. The riches, basically. I didn't run UROC and it didn't get me these qualifying points I needed for the following year where they split it into a pro series and an east and a west. And subsequently, I was like only in the west, but I had this buggy and Jeff Mello was in the pro series, but he didn't have a buggy. So we shared a car for the season. So he went to the pro events with like Skyjacker body panels on and I went to my events with like my body panels on. We just like would share the same car, but it looked like we had two and it was super fun. When we prepped that thing all the time, because I mean, if you're running all the events in it, like it, the motor never cooled off. You know what I mean? So back then there was a lot of events. It was super cool. Although I talk about the prep of it and it was like change the oil and like make sure that like the driveline that hit a rock isn't so bent that it won't, you know, just licorice stick on the next rock. But it, you know, or pretzel up. But it, it basically wasn't like today where the prep is so ridiculous, you know, but it was a lot of fun, man. We had a great times together. Now, he's a gr- he is such a great guy. He was the, the first uh, KOH too. I co-rode with him. In 08. Yep. Yeah. 08. And then you came back and went up the next year as you as the driver, right? Yeah. Well, that was a cool cool segue too. So basically, I don't know if I'm screwing up your interview, but that... No, you can't. There's no way to screw it up. Lance Clifford was my spotter and he bought a uh, Jeep Speed. He actually bought Ron Stobaugh's Jeep Speed, uh, which was now, I guess, dubbed Terminator after we stacked it at Parker. We, we were doing Jeep Speed and we were having a blast. And we did a couple, you know, a year and a half of that. Lance ended up being... Uh, a good co-driver. So he got asked by people to be their co-driver. Pistol Pete asked him to be his co-driver, but he had that three seat geyser rig. So Lance calls me one day and he's like, dude, five grand, buy the seat next to you know me in the section and we'll run the Baja 1000 together. And he draws first in the 40th Baja 1000, right? So 40th Baja 1000, I took off line first in a trophy truck, 2007. That's November. And then you go like, okay, December, January, February is the 2008 King of the Hammers. And Jeff Mello is like, let's go do this. And I'm like, right on, I'm in. So I go from trophy truck to air shocks through the desert. And I was like, I knew I could never do a Ford trophy truck. Like, I mean, there was just no way. I watched the money that got spent down there at the time. And I was like, yeah, this is leagues apart from what we were able to, to do. But we could do King of the Hammers. And I was like, it's all the elements I love. It's the picking the line through the rocks, like the dirt bike, trials bike stuff. It's the fast, which I've always wanted to do, but I've never really done. And you can build a car for this that nobody's really building right now. And I'm like, okay, this is our time to go build something cool. So I called Shannon and I said, what do you think about building a, uh, a car just for the hammers? And he's like, yeah. And I said, I got some ideas on what I want to do, you know, lightweight spider tracks axles, but like LS seven powered. And he's like, I'm in, let's do it. So that was the, that was the segue of how we got to that car. And it went through a lot of changes and Schaefer was a big part of that because 
it was still air shocks. We were trying to make it a pro mod car. And Schaefer was prepping Bill Koontz's, which was the Torchmate. The 7100 truck. 7100 truck. And we looked at the back of it and I'm like, dude, that suspension on my car would be perfect. And look, it all fits. So we copied it. So Jesse Haynes and a bunch of people, we just all teamed up and we ripped that car apart and we made it like the same rear suspension as the 7100 truck. And it ripped. It like came to life. Like it was good. Like the car was actually pretty good. I watch videos of it today and I'm like, okay, it wasn't that good. But at the time it was like a badass car with Fox's bypasses and everything. And you're like, this thing's ripping. And, and it's pretty much like a 4800 car is today. It was cool stuff. It was very cool. And now a message from our sponsor, the Jesse Combs Foundation. Today we have on and joining us, we have Adele Adams from Warren Industries, Warren Winches, a trailblazer in her own right with almost 31 years of service with uh, Warren, being a an amazing woman in the off-road world at such a, an early point in her life and still, still there, just speaks volumes about her. Adele is a member of the Jesse Combs Foundation board and welcome Adele. How are you? Thank you so much, Wyatt. I'm doing great. So what excites me right now is I'm talking to you and we're watching the eBay auction of Bart Dixon's OG 13 spot click off. And it's seconds away from the winning bid. And right now it's at $1,575 to go to the Jesse Combs Foundation. And all those proceeds go to scholarships and somebody is going to get the chance to go and start the 4,400 race at the end of King and Hammers week in that spot representing the JCF. And I'm so excited. It's like five seconds left oh my gosh it's so exciting (laughs) so exciting and it's over fifteen hundred and seventy five dollars that is amazing who's that 35 bids 35 bids oh man that was that was uh people were onto that man well congratulations yeah congratulations to you guys we are so excited when we received that donation and uh, can't wait to see who won that and cheer them on at king of the hammers and eBay doesn't tell you who won. Oh, well, we're going to have to wait. I know it'll be public very soon. I'm, I'll have to check social media as I think everyone else will, but I can't wait to, to hear who that ends up being and what that comes out as. But let's get back on topic. I just totally random. Those uh, were that was hitting at the same time we were recording this. So exciting. So Adele, tell us about uh, you. Tell us about your trailblazing years with Warren and tell us about your role at the JCF. As you mentioned, it's nearly 31 years at Warren lifetime. I've worked through many different areas at Warren. Part of my time there was on the sales team and found that uh, there were not many women in the industry. It was great to get in there and help move things forward a little bit. I learned to drive, learned to wheel. My very first trip out, the one of our sales managers tossed me the keys and said, you're driving. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And he sent him back and said, yep, you're going to learn what this is about and what product we sell and how to use it. And at the end of the day, he said, hey, can I get my keys? And I said, nope, I'm keeping them. And <laughs> so it all started. I came back from that trip and bought my own four-wheel drive. And I've been wheeling ever since and enjoy being out on the trails with customers and friends, as well as working trade shows and all of that. I really like that we talked about this pre-record that, you know, Jesse Combs herself at an event 
Warren and Jesse were really synonymous. She didn't leave the start line of a race. She didn't go to anything, any off-road event and not be associated with Warren. She had it on her fire suits. It was on her cars. It was on her Jeeps. You guys were partners, long-time, long-term partners. Absolutely. And we always joke that she probably had it tattooed on her someplace. Uh, I don't think that's true, but we joked about that. Jessie was part of our family. She was part of the Warren family and she would go to events with us. And, you know, it's funny because people see her as this star, which she was, but she was very down to earth and loved what she did, loved being out with people. And as part of the Jesse Combs Foundation, you know, she wants to educate. That was her goal was to educate and inspire women and empower them to make their way in any trade. Actually, it doesn't have to be the automotive, but any trade. I think her voice, letting people know that it's okay for a woman to jump in and make things happen in industries that are dominated by males. It's obviously more accepted nowadays, but still there is something about that that holds people back. And I think carrying on her wishes of allowing us to educate and inspire and empower women. It's it's an honor to be on the board of directors for this. Oh, I agree with you that there is still some stigmas and some barriers for entry in depending on the industry. You know, certainly if you're in the admin pool, there's none. But if you are wanting to be a welder, you wanting to be a high level executive, you want to be a commercial pilot, you want to be a fighter pilot. There's barriers that have been erected and we're tearing them down and women are tearing them down daily. And it's really amazing to see that happen in this era. Absolutely. And coming from the automotive side of things, we're seeing a lot more women drivers and I mean, racing as well as leisure. Uh, wheeling. And that's great. And Jesse would come on our runs with us, let's say at Moab, and she would encourage the women to get out of that passenger seat and you can do this. It really helped. And the other thing that really was close to Jesse's heart was kids. We would go to events and she would say, let's find a young person. It didn't have to be women, but uh, girls to ride with me. And she would love sitting there and chatting with them and talking about what their goals were in life as 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, whatever age. And after the day of swapping different people in her front seat, she would come and say, I had the most fun interacting with these guys, you know, and, and finding out what they like nowadays and what their goals are. And my daughters actually have had that opportunity to ride with her and uh, they still talk about it today. And I can visualize, as most can listen to this, visualize the smile on her face and the animated gestures with her hands as she's telling the story about how excited she was about that day. I love it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the giggles. She, she would always giggle about it and be so excited. It was a huge loss of such a pioneer for women in motorsports. But you're right. We are seeing a lot more women in motorsports, a lot more women putting on the helmet. And it's so inspiring to, to the men and to the generations below. Yeah, I know it can be intimidating, but I think, you know, having having the Jesse Combs out there and some of the others gives inspiration to, to women who might not have taken that plunge and, you know, jumped into that driver's seat on the race car, tried it out. So I think it's awesome. I think we have a legit contender in Bailey Campbell here in the 4400 race. So whoever won your spot is going to have to do battle with one of the best drivers in the world. Absolutely. She is rocking it. <laughs> She's killing it. I'm yeah. such a fan. So today we've kind of covered a little bit about JCF, a little bit about you, but I know you guys have a booth that will be in Hammertown. You're going to have to tell me the address though. I think it's, I know it's on Warren Way. 
it's just off of Warren Way on Amsoil Avenue. So at the corner of Amsoil and Warren Way, uh, you'll find the Jesse Combs Foundation booth. And we're going to have people there come talk to us, learn more about the foundation. We'll also have some beanies and neck buffs and stickers and patches and things there for sale to help fund our goals, um, the mission that Jesse had laid out for us. So stop by and check out what we have. Another exciting thing that is happening, remember back when you were young, You'd go to school and they would have a jogathon. We're going to have the Jesse Combs Foundation Raceathon at King of the Hammers. And so come find us on the lake bed at the booth and you can sign up, make a pledge for your favorite racer in any of the classes. At the end of the race, Ultra 4 will let us know how many miles each racer went and that would be your donation. And so we hope that you all will come out and support your favorite racer in this way and also supporting the Jesse Combs Foundation. I think this race-a-thon is a really cool thing. I think Dave Cole, you know, he's a idea guy. We all know him as an idea guy. Him coming up with that idea and throwing that back at you guys is something to embrace and run with. Now we just get uh, something of a disaster of recording the data when guys and what race mile the guys call it at. But I think that will be figured out. Or, you know, just bet on your favorite driver and then go talk to him in Hammertown and say, hey, listen, I put money on you in the race-a-thon. You better go the full way. I don't want to have to. You better go the, the full way. As far as race-a-thon goes, Jesse Combs Foundation is not going to be limited to just race-a-thon donations. If you guys, you know, if you walk up, you say, you know what, you know, I was going to spend 20 bucks on a case of beer. I'm willing to give that 20 bucks to JCF to further the cause and to set up a scholarship for some young woman individual that is a trailblazer in her own right. You guys will gladly take their money, right? Absolutely. Yes, we will. And the same thing, if you wanted the, the race of on, if you want to just say, um, I'll pledge $50 to whatever racer, that, that's great as well. We'll, t- we'll take that too. I really think you guys have a good thing going. So Adele, will you be out on the lake bed as well? I will. I'll be there for almost two weeks. See, amazing. That is a, a woman who is, you got to be tough as leather to, to do that. I, at about five days, I start going, man, what am I doing out here? Yep. I'll be packing many layers of clothing from everything from expecting 90 degree weather to snow. So I'll be there bundled probably. There you go. I look forward to seeing you here just very shortly, Adele. Thank you for coming on and giving us a little bit uh, more insight into JCF and see you on the lake bed. Great. Thank you so much. Now to return to our previously scheduled episode with three-time King Jason Shearer. So you brought up Lance having bought that, uh, that Jeep speed, Ron Stobos Jeep speed. And I remember a lot about that, but I mean, Lance was a champion in that thing. How many Baja thousands did that thing win? Okay. So that was Schaefer's and Schaefer was like, Schaefer was ahead of the curve. Like he was building the killer rock crawlers and going out and winning the U-Rock and ARCA competitions. I think they were back then actually. But they won the U-Rock one like in 2003 or 2002, maybe even back to back. I don't know. Right before that tiny era, they were the guys. And then Mike actually kind of switched and went to Baja. And Camo, Lance, um, obviously Schaefer and and uh, Jeff Mello, they all decided to go down and race the thousand in a Jeep speed with sort of no experience. And they won three in a row. And I got to be part of one of those. They were, I don't know. They, it's like the same spirit of the Jeep people. Like, don't tell them they can't do something because they won't listen to you anyway. So they just go for it. And, you know, they, they actually, I think at one point, Jess said, it's pretty easy to win down in Baja. And then they couldn't finish again. Like, <laughs> so, um, you know, they just had a really good run. But Schaefer was on it. Like, he knew what track wanted what setup. 
you know, he was really into the details. Mel has always been that way too. The setup of the car and, and what it took to tune it to that next level. And I think they were actually the originators of that passion of like me wanting to figure out how to make the car faster. And, you know, maybe I got too caught up in that stuff because I was always trying to make it fast and I wasn't as worried about the longevity of stuff or how the car was going to finish. <laughs> I just wanted it to be fast. And like, it, it's sort of my resume, right? Like probably the most poles, I don't know if it's still true, but probably the most poles in ultra four, but as many laps as we've led, we don't have nearly the wins of a lot of the other guys. Do you think with your age that you've kind of slowed down a little bit, you know, saved the car a little bit more? Do you think that's why you're maybe having a bunch of success in the last couple of years that you might not have had when you were in your 20s? If I was going slower, we would have been passed by Miller a couple of times over. The fact is, is that I hired a friend of mine, Adam McGow, who came from, you know, other forms of motorsports who I met thanks to JT Taylor in Baja. So JT Taylor, about four years ago, decided he was going to race that bug he had in class 11 down in Baja. Oh, yeah. And I, the crazy part about the car is that I had raced it in 2006 and it never showed up. It was the uh, dirt sports car, but it never came down to me. These suckers left me in the Bay of L.A. by myself. Um, <laughs> I hitched a ride down with uh, Berger and Waze in the, in the, when they were doing the Harris thing for John Hara. And I hitched the ride down there to get there. For, that's when I was getting in the car. And then the car never made it. And there was no way to get me back out of there. So I had to hitch a ride in the back of a pickup in Mexico. <laughs> Love it. The part about that whole, the whole thing of how it all worked out, though. I don't know. It's just, it's crazy. The, the fact that, like, you can go to Baja and meet somebody that will become your lifelong friend. We went to a deal and, and JT goes, this is Adam. He flew in from Ohio. He wanted on his own dime to come down and see what Baja was all about. He works for Subaru and does, you know, world rally competition stuff, Red Bull global rally cross for Vermont sports car, which Vermont sports cars, like the Subaru team for that, that you see like, so Adam like goes in crew chiefs for Travis Pastrana when he's not doing it for me. Like he's a top level guy, you know, like he, and he he's not, the crew chief there, but he's like one of the guys that knows all the stuff on the car and he has his like jobs. He knows gearboxes. He knows all these things that like nobody thought you needed an ultra four. Well, JT just goes, Hey, you got an extra seat in your Dodge? I'm like, yep. He goes, cool. This is Adam. He's riding with you. I'm like, sweet <laughs> dude. I've never met. And we're going to go log like 5,000 miles together. I hope he's cool. Right. And by the end of the trip, I'm like, man, if you ever want to move out here, like you can come out and we'll try to find you some work and you can, you know, do whatever. And he's like, all right. And he literally found work through Safecraft. You know, we, we got him a job over there. Pat O'Keefe hired him in and which was super cool to be like a crew chief for me and to work at Safecraft. And then he moved into a camper behind my barn for six months while he got used to the, you know, East Bay, the Bay Area and found out where he wanted to live. He's now obviously not in the backyard. He's figured out his stuff, but he's the reason that we finished the races because he took a different approach on the car and got the car to be better all the time. And he basically said, drive it how you're going to drive it. We're going to get it to last with what you need. And that was awesome. And, and he's never, I mean, look at what success we've had since he's come on. I mean, everything that we've had, it's like Adam's touch on that car is the difference. You're in the mix. Yeah. Adam is the secret sauce. 
he's the secret sauce. It's just to me, it's kind of one of those things that you'd never expect a dude that you just meet randomly like that would end up being what you needed in life. You know what I mean? But that's kind of like one of those things where, <laughs> you know, it happens and that's how it works in the world sometimes. I would be cool sponsoring like a cage match, like Adam versus Burger for who is the secret sauce. <laughs> That's an interesting one. I don't think anyone wants a cage match with Burger. <laughs> no. <laughs> the dude's an animal. <laughs> He's an animal. Uh, oh, man, I love it. So you got into rock crawling there, and you were national championship rock crawler in the mid-2000s with Lance as a spotter, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Lance and I had a lot of fun together. Like we were like the fun guys, I think, in rock crawling. Like we didn't take it too seriously, but we did get a cool car. And that car was the like education or the foundation for me to understand a little more. Like Schaefer built a cool buggy, but we were it was it was one of those things where you built the chassis and then you made all the stuff fit. I bought Tiny from John Nelson. I drove it for him for a little bit, then I bought it, and it was like, okay, this is Form. This is function before form. I mean, the car was skewed. It wasn't it was even game straight. Changer. It was the game, game changer, changer car, right? It was like the thing that changed rock crawling. It was center gravity. It was like lightweight tubing. It was only things that are there that have a purpose. There was no extras. I actually think Randy Slauson is, is more like that of a builder in our sport than maybe anybody else. But Trout's that way because everything has two forms. Like he won't build a bracket that holds this. He'll build a bracket that has to hold two things. Like everything has to do two things for him to be able to put it together, right? And he's got a little bit of that in that aspect. And he's, you know, incredible fabrication. Like it's, it comes out, it's art. I almost hate driving Dan stuff because you don't want to screw it up. It's so pretty. Right. You know, Nelson, John Nelson, he was the... He was the fab guy that like changed, at least in my eyes, how I wanted things to be done. And I've tried to get better at it. Like it's it's, an, it's a really high level skill set. You know what I mean? I'm nowhere near where he's at, but we're always trying to make things lighter and better. You know, like the engineering behind it that in that aspect, I guess. I know that, you know, certainly after not, I think, or maybe even on your 2009 car, you know, so this is going back easily the decade, you talking about getting the radiator out from up in the back window. And getting yeah. it down low, and it wasn't. It, it was a. It was a you know center gravity thing, but it was also a parachute thing. It was like let's get the uh, the air to flow through the through the car, not get this uh, low pressure zone inside the cabin, because that actually slowed down. Like that was the level. And this is ten years ago that you were thinking that, and you wanted everything lower and lower, and everything lower. Like I think Adam Shearer, when when I interviewed Adam, he talked about having you know, weekly calls with you, like even the, the GPS, you were like, yeah, mount it to my feet, you know, like lower everything lower and challenging from that standpoint, him, that was one of the tribe cars. I think we kind of maybe skip past that. We'll get there. But he said, uh, he said it was very interesting working with you because you challenged him, forced him outside the box on how to execute. Yeah. And I mean, with, with nothing but good intentions challenge him, you know, it was, uh, that dude is such a good guy. I mean, in all aspects, we like, it was such a fun experience. You know, the reason that, I mean, I'm skipping around a little, I guess, on this, but the reason that that all came about was because there was a 2011 race that I raced Shannon, like, and it's the race no one saw. We left back door. Shannon was a couple minutes ahead of me. He passed me on back door when we were having some winch issues with my brother and I trying to get the cable tied up and the cable kept coming apart. Shannon got around us. I actually didn't even stop to get my brother back in the car. I took off chasing Shannon everyone else calls it that I left my brother at back door, but whatever. Right. We raced each other door to door for like 45 miles and nobody can see it because there was no camera crews. There was no fans out there. 
And, you know, Shannon was faster. My car started to overheat. The radiator thing's funny, right? Want that weight low. But at some point when you're standing on it and you can't get the cooling through it, you end up with a problem where the car got heat soaked and it wouldn't it wouldn't uh, stay out of limp mode, which, you know, turned us into the, we'll never have a limp mode on a car again. It'll burn down before it'll go into limp mode. You know, that race right there, I came home from that thing and I was, I wouldn't say I was depressed. Like I had like a second or third, I think I had a third place. I think at the end of it all, that was it. I was done. I was like, yep, I, I, this car can't win King of the Hammers again in a real race. Like you could luck your way in, but I wasn't going out there to try to luck my way into a win. I wanted to go win flat out. And so I knew I couldn't spend the money it was going to cost to build Shannon's car, because even back then, that was a $200,000 car, you know, $175,000, $200,000 car uh, to build what Shannon was racing. And so I was like, well, that was fun. And it was hard to sell the car. But when I sold it, it was like, you know, I'd barely gotten the check to clear. And I got a call from Tom Allen, who said he built a second car. And if I'd like to drive it, I was like, yeah, that sounds like fun. It'd be a little bit less stress. And, you know, I'd be happy to go drive the car and, and be part of it. That year went really well. And he said, let's build an IFS car. So that's when Adam and I had the fun. Before we talk about that one, I want to pick your brain on one little thing. When you and Tom and you guys teamed up for that ASR racing, yep. Adam talked about it in his episode. And so everyone should have heard this, the white car with the rolled tubing back. Yep. You ended up at Texana and you put that thing, you qualified in front of Jesse James in a geyser truck. And for me, I think if anyone heard me talk about that, for me, that was, it was the eye-opening moment where I think a lot of people in California on Race Desert all of a sudden said, whoa, what is, what just happened? That this four-wheel drive, rock donkey, whatever pistol Peter, whoever wants to call it, rock donkey, yep. was mm -hmm. able to get out in front of the guy's truck. Now, no one had seen the, that course. You know, I mean, it's a Texana is tight, super rocky. It's really not a good trophy truck course. It's a great 4,400 course. Yeah, it was, a, it was an advantage to the Ultra 4 car like layout because it was tight. And it was in a lot of ways, it was more like Baja in, in those tight sections where, you know, the, the cars that are all wheel drive can outperform the two wheel drive trucks, which is a whole you could have a whole nother, you know, podcast on the all wheel drive versus two wheel drive trophy truck thing right now. It was that like first moment where people went it, it legitimized the Ultra 4 cars. And like it wasn't me. Anybody could have done it. I think in that car, cause it was a fast car. It was just that we clicked off a good lap. We had good lines through there. And, you know, I got to the starting line on race morning and the guy that was behind me, I think Jesse might've been like a two or three spots back, but the guy that was behind me goes, Hey, I just want to make sure you know how this works. Cause I know you haven't done a lot of desert races, but when we bump you from behind, that means you need to pull over so we can get past you. And I went, good luck, dude. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was like, I was so insulted that I said, good luck. And I, I think when I blew, it was just a bummer. The motor let go. Like I had an oil pressure issue or something and seized up. We had to wait 17 minutes for the second place car to come. You know, it was like, <laughs> we were like running away with the thing, you know, that day was pretty cool. That was a pivotal time in the sport. I think as far as like, we're not just rock donkeys, you know, and, and I think it was cool for everybody. It was good for the, they lifted the seas, you know. Uh, massive inflection point, man. I just, and that's stuck, that's stuck in my head since the day that you did that. Like, wow. Wow. That Beale Ranch was cool too. That was a cool place. Yeah, those the, yeah, the Beale family is something else. I've, I've been out there quite a few times, raced there, gone out and did testing there. There there's enough guys uh like like Trey Paliero, that trophy truck guy that you know let us come out there. And then uh, they run Texas Raptor run out of there. So when it gets to be Raptor run time, 
and you guys want to go raptoring around you and ways and company yeah. and, and want to come all the way to Texas. That's it's, it's a pretty good time. But you, uh, you and Adam and Tom and company, you guys designed that little car, the little IFS car that then went to Waze at one point. Now it's uh, Mike Bowes. But walk walk into that car. That was a pretty cool experience. So I I had built like a, a jig of sorts, like a, a, an expandable contraption. It almost looked like some kind of like a kid's toy that I built where you could move the pivot points on suspension in order to make like the CV angles, do what you wanted, the steering angles, the A-arms, and try to get like the right Ackerman and the right Kingpin inclination on this. Like, here it is. Here's where the pivots need to be. And this is what we have to do. And I was just about to start bandsaw cutting out panels. And uh, Tim Lund called and said his son Dallas was pretty much fluent in SolidWorks and would draw up what we were designing. And Dallas was a rock star. I gave him all the you know, specs that we wanted we had some little, you know, hiccups like along the way, obviously, like all the pieces ended up being like four inches long and you had to weld like 3000 parts together to make it fit. And so then we realized it's a lot easier to make them bigger and all this stuff. But that design was awesome. Like he he built a better front end than was available in the marketplace, even if he had gone out and purchased it from somebody. So we had a, a front end that was like really cool. Now, it took us, I think we were on our sixth revision to what I have on my car. So it wasn't overnight that we said we got it. And I don't think you'll ever be done with it because you can always make stuff better. But he basically gave us that platform to where we could go and make changes to things and make them better. And if it hadn't been for him, I don't think we would have ever gotten my current car to where it's at in that compressed time frame. I owe a lot to Dallas on, on the design of that. What revision was it where the lower, the front lower control arms actually bent down at the end? That was on my 14 car that I, I'm racing right now. So that was the second iteration of the, of the start of a new start on it. But Tom's, I don't know which car you want to call it, but the ASR car, if you will, the IFS car, we had tried swing sets to speed up the steering and get more Ackerman. We had increased rack sizes. We had done a couple of like revisions in that car to get it better. The thing about that car that's interesting is it's still the most nimble of those IFS cars. Like that car is a rocket ship on the tight stuff. It turns in so quick and it's so responsive to driving. It's a really awesome car. It was, uh, you know, a little narrow maybe from today's standards. And it was hard to work on because single seater, there wasn't a lot of room in the cockpit and everything was like really hard to work on. Um, everything was tight. Like you had custom wrenches for all kinds of parts. And, I think when we built the second version, like my car now, the idea was give ourselves enough room. You can take a transmission out with an impact wrench and every single bolt you can get to. And and that kind of was our second version, if you will, of making it so that it wasn't painful to work on anymore. The design of my car, which a lot of people don't know, was that it was built to be either a single seater or a two seater. But I wasn't sure at the time the length of the races for King of the Hammers and a lot of the short course stuff we were doing, if a two-seater was worth the extra space and the weight of the co-driver. So I put the radiator inside the car long ways where you would put a passenger and put the fans blown out instead of having that weight up high. So we were trying like to get the car to have a low center of gravity be fast. And that thing was a rocket ship. I mean, it still is. It is a cool car. It had holes at the side panel and you had ducting on the passenger side panel. But yeah, I, I think I remember seeing like a race that you guys had, were running, like you'd end up, you'd thrown the panel off because you weren't getting cooling. And then 
Yeah, we tried, you know, we tried some different fans. We tried like the bigger motor fans and everything. And we just weren't getting the airflow through them and stuff like that. So we, we, and we learned a little bit about air too. I mean, it sounds silly because it doesn't, aerodynamics don't really play a big role in what we're doing yet. But at the time we were thinking things would work a certain way. And we found that like, it's actually kind of a low pressure zone. We weren't getting the air into there that we wanted and it needed the radiator put back up in the rear window and, and, and it worked out, make those changes. But it was a cool setup and it was a neat experience. We built it too low the first time around. So if anyone remembers the 2012 qualifying effort, I couldn't get up the rock at the beginning of Chocolate Thunder because it would just hit the chassis like right behind the front tires. And I was pretty bummed after the race. Like we finished the race. It was brutal. I think we finished it like as one of the last cars that finished. But when we got back to Texas, that drive that Adam Scherer had because he, he nothing was like impossible for him. He could do whatever. And I love that attitude that he had. He always did. And he was such a hard worker. So him and Ryan, they cut that car like off at right in front of where your feet land in the car. And they made it have like a six inch rise in the skid plate and basically moved the whole rest of the car up six inches from where the front end was and fix that car so that it could go through the rocks. And it was, it was a better car the next day, like instantly. So that stuff was really cool to, to go and, and do. And I, I think that next year we led the most laps of any race. You know, we just didn't have the finishes, which was that secret sauce that was missing right. with like, having it really all right. But it was no doubt it was really a great experience in life. And then after that car, you built what you're running today. But in the middle of there, you ran, I think you and Lance teamed up and you drove Lance's. Lance had an IFS car there for a little bit. Yep, and Kevin Stearns just bought that car, actually. So that'll be racing at King of the Hammers again I with a good driver. That. So, you know, that's cool. What happened on that race? Let's If the story that I heard was, well, I know the C, you had CV issues on the front. Was that 2013? 20, no, that was 2014. 2014. So I raced, uh, I raced the, the PSC car for Tom, the ASR Racing PSC car for Tom for two years at the Hammers. It was cool to get him the pole because Tom Allen was... I just remember sitting there and we still had Shannon and a couple people to go and, and I had already run my, my lap and, you know, to see the excitement on his face when we got the pole, I mean, he was overjoyed, you know what I mean? And it was cool. Cause I felt like we'd had our ups and downs, we'd had some issues and, and just to see him really happy was cool. And then he focused on some of his son's racing. So he sold the car. That was it. I was actually done. I was like, okay. So it was the second time I was like, well, you know, I guess it's over again, you know, and the story is always kind of sad, but it's not supposed to be. But my mom died and she left a small inheritance, not a lot of money. You know, I'll tell you, it's not like it's enough to be weird, but it was, I got $50,000 and I was like, well, I think we can piece together something. And so we had to build from like junkyard parts that Kevin Stearns gave me for motors and a factory ECU with like, you know, pulling the wiring harness out. It wasn't like a fancy car, but we were able to build an incredible chassis. Dan Trout built the chassis with us in the shop and Dallas designed the front end. And, you know, I was a big part of like putting it all together, but not, you know, not actually the chassis builder kind of thing, but pretty much wired it and plumbed it and stuff with local guys here. And we got it all together and it was ready for the 14 race season, but not for King of the Hammers. So I ran Lance's car in order to run the 14 King of the Hammers race. And that car wasn't finished. It wasn't done. And it, it had gone to a two seater originally as like a fun pre-runner car then turned into a four seater and then just didn't get finished and sat there. And so I had it, Lance had moved to St. George and he said, Hey, would you grab it? And I'll, I'll come get it. And I called him and said, Hey, if I finish this thing, you want to race King of the Hammers? He goes, dude, if you finish that car, you can race it whenever you want. And I was like, all right. So I finished it out in like a month and a half. 
And we went down there and it wasn't tuned well motor wise. It had a lot of issues. So we qualified like I had to like neutral drop it up the rocks because it didn't have any bottom end. Luckily, we got it tuned on the lake bed after qualifying. So we were like 26th, I think, in the starting position. Um, the guy that owns Arrow Lane, Chris Hines, he uh, he tuned it for us, riding around in the passenger seat and on the lake bed and got it to run really good. And we went out there and on the first lap, we turned through the pit and we were in third. So we had passed 23 cars on the first lap. And I mean, it was a rocket ship. That car was badass. And I'm like, we, we got a chance. Like, we're going to go for this oh, yeah. thing. We got, we got to the rocks and I'm like, hey, it's driving kind of funny. And then Lance is like, what do you mean? I'm like, it's kind of loose all the time when I turn to the right. And I don't know why. Well, when we got to the first like real rocks, the front right tire wasn't spinning. And when I got into the rocks a little bit deeper, the front left wasn't turning anymore either. The CVs had been sitting in that car for like four years and had never been lubed. But I'm thinking when I'm putting it all together, they're brand it's new. It's installed, right? It's in, Well, in they're brand new. And it was just one of those things. They were purple when we took them apart and there was no more parts inside them. So they had been pretty warm for a while in the desert. It's a great car. Super cool car. Trout built the front end and Schaefer did some work on it, on it and we finished it out. And it's, it's a heck of a car, but it just didn't have a good race. Yeah, that's the rumor I, I'd heard uh, was CVs didn't ha- didn't have grease and just killed it. And I was fighting right in that same time period. I was fighting CV issues on my car, and it was I couldn't keep bands on. You know, couldn't couldn't keep the yeah. the couldn't keep the band on. And if you can't keep the band on it, then you can't keep the grease in it. And if you can't keep the grease in it, and I was like, man, I was having trouble with grease. And then I found out you guys, how far you made it without, with no grease. I was like, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> yeah. Well, it might've had a little to start, but not enough. You know, all those things, I guess they all happen for a reason. We turned around and, and built my car, just little stuff to get it ready. And, and finally, like, you know, after a lot of revisions, you know, and, and just putting in better parts. I mean, literally it was a junkyard motor kind of deal to start with and nothing was very fancy in it. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't high end stuff, but it's been a great platform to continue to work on. And that was that point I was making earlier with Ben Bauer. It's like, just finish it because you can always modify it later. You can always work on it later and don't give up on working on it. Just keep continually improving the car and it will be a better car. I mean, I'm sure there's a point in time where they life out and the chassis are done. But if you've got a good base and you can keep making those adjustments, you can build the car into something really good. And so that's why, you know, sometimes you just got to race what you have and then make it better as time goes on with when you can afford it or when you have the ideas to make it better. Right. You know, we've always kept that attitude here. So you're the subject matter expert on being a king. You're three time. You got two back to back right now. KOH 2020. The floor is yours, man. Let's talk about it. I went out with Fox probably the week before SEMA and made some more, you know, changes. So tuning has been a thing that that's harder to do than most people expect because you get down to the hammers. It's still a 10 hour drive, right? We get there. And if you don't have enough range within all your shocks and different packages of stuff that you're working on, you kind of get yourself out of the box and then you're like, okay, we don't have springs for this package that you're trying to set up. And, you know, you're running to car tech and you're trying to get stuff and, and, you know, make it so that you can get it all right. And I think with like Fox's involvement the last few years at a way more like involved level, and it started with Wayne and then now with Mike Kim, the idea to go down there and try something and go see how it performs, we've made the car better and better and better. I got out of the car with Mike this like right before SEMA and was like, 
oh my god dude this car it's almost like to the point where it's like i can't drive it any faster because i almost can't see what's coming up anymore than i can go that fast you know and driving your vision yeah i mean it's it's pretty much there you know and when you when you say that i've been really fortunate to be able to drive the trophy the trophy truck that pat had for a while and that's that geyser truck and it allows your field of vision to go up and then you can go faster again because you're not worried about the little undulations. We're still worried about the little stuff. So your focus is a certain level that was in front of you. And I, I try to keep scanning the ground in front of us so I can see what's coming and then back into the zone that we're driving in. So I can kind of keep that what's coming isn't going to be a giant hole and it's going to you know toss us. But in the trophy truck, you can start looking more into the field out in the further areas. And then you see the big hole and you're like, okay, that's the one you got to slow down for. But you don't really care about the little stuff. We still care about the little stuff because it'll screw you up if you hit it. But it's pretty fast. To think that we picked up that much more is cool, except that just as I say that, Eric Miller picked up that much too. He did. And he's that much faster in the rocks. So I joke about it, but it's like, it's so cool that everybody's pushing each other because the sport continues to get faster and better. And I think it's a cool deal that the IFS cars get faster and faster through all the rough stuff and the desert stuff. And then solid axle cars get faster and faster through the rocks. And this game of how fast you have to be in the desert so that Eric doesn't catch you or Randy or whatever. And then he gets in the rocks and he's faster than you can go. And then you got to get him back in the desert. And it's like, there's no rules. And we have these two cars that are totally different and we're battling it out out there. And it's made an incredible drama that you couldn't have scripted if you had a NASCAR rule that said, well, one guy's got to run this gear ratio, but this guy can run the big motor and they're going to be totally different But because you could never get that formula. Well, it's that. Oh, so you think that's a good idea? We'll find yeah. out on Friday. Yeah. You know, it, it's pretty cool how it all worked out that way. You know, it, it makes it it makes it really interesting. We'll see you again on the 7th of February. <laughs> so, I th- yeah, oh, absolutely. I think the one thing that really impresses me with, I mean, again, guys like me, guys like Randy, guys like anyone in the Campbell stable. And don't mm-hmm. get me wrong, there are many, many people out there in the Ultra 4 field that fit this criteria. You prep your own car. You have guys that help you, but you are right there side by side. And I think that comes into play when it comes to triage. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, we know the car. It's certainly not a sport where some of the other people, you know, can jump in their trophy truck and then just go race it. Like it's still a hands-on deal and we know every part of it, I think as a driver, you know, you know the car pretty well, but it's it's a lot of work. You know, I think people discount it. It's it's a total crazy thing. I mean, my wife knows that when hammer season comes, I'm in the shop. Like it's, it's, I go in there every night after dinner and I work in there until late and I get up in the morning, sometimes early before work and go and finish something up that I was working on. And I get a call or two during the day of parts I got to get ordered up and you know, things going on. And it's uh it's the real deal. And people are almost going to laugh when I say this, I reached out to you for this kind of this prep series. I wanted to get, I, you can't, we can't go into King of the Hammers 2020 and I not interview the two-time Infinity King. That's just not going to happen. But reaching out to you in your shop, you have no cell signal and no Wi-Fi out there. So when you walk in the shop, it's work, work, work. When I'm exchanging text message with you about this and planning and what day we're going to do this and scheduling, it'd be interesting. I would send something and then four hours later, I would get, or the next morning when you would finally, like you probably saw the text at 10 p.m. at midnight, whatever your time. And you're like, well, I know that's 2 a.m. his time. I'm not going to text him now. I'll wait till I get up. So 
I like that your setup is there's really, it's hard to get you, I guess, sidetracked in the shop. It's so easy. I find myself in the shop, like take a lull, I pick up my phone. Oh, there's a text message. Oh, there's an email I need to answer. Oh, I, look at that on Facebook. I got tagged on something. And then next thing I know, I'm 20 minutes down. Yeah. And you guys just get in there, put your head down and grind it out. We do. And and I love that aspect of the shop. And I think the fact that, you know, so I just built a new shop um, at my house. It's been, I've been at Safecraft for a long time. And that was an interesting dynamic because it was a long drive. It would take me an hour to get there. And so I would leave here after dinner and I would go out there and I only had a couple hours to work on something. So it was super focused. So that kind of started that real focus in the shop instead of just walking in and chilling out for a minute or whatever and hanging out. It it became a real work-based environment in there. But Miracle Trust and I built that shop at my house and it's sick. But yeah, no self-signal definitely focuses you into it. I'm still a squirrel in there. I'll take the sway bar apart and start working on something. And the next thing you know, I've got the rack out. (laughs) Adam looks over. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, dude, can you just like finish one thing at a time? And it's a little bit of like, yeah, except that, you know, as soon as an idea pops in my head, I think it's the best thing at the time. And and that's like an ADD lifestyle, right? But it's fun that way. So we still get it all done in there and it's super focused, but it's definitely, uh, it's not structured like you would have it like a work day normally because it's like you kind of go in there for fun and the next thing you know, you're doing the next thing that popped into your mind instead of just like knocking off the task list. And so he's been really good at keeping me focused sometimes to his frustration over me. (laughs) But that's good. I mean, I mean, you say, you know, you're a squirrel here and you focused in ADD. It's funny how many people that I've come across uh, now that I'm really diving into people's individual personalities that are doing what we do that are ADD. It's yeah, like we yeah. have this this ability to laser focus at something for a little bit and it it's what makes you great, but it, it's also the thing that's also to your detriment. Totally, which is an interesting like thought that while we were fast in the single seat car, Burger was that glue that kept the focus, you know, and, and it's been like the team that makes that difference when you have them in there and you're like, okay, cool. So I don't know that I'd really want to race without him in the car because of how well we work together. So it's, it's cool that that relationship helps like that. I mean, his job is to talk you off a ledge a thousand times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, we've had a lot of cool racing stuff that's happened in the car together. Um, an easy Rick story, since I know you're friends with him, he started 99th one year. And I think it was in 2009, actually, I'm trying to recall like the dates, but I think that was a 2009 KOH. He started 99th and we started like in the 35th, 36th spot and we were leading the race, um, going into the rocks. And essentially what happened was everyone's like, dude, you're leading your overall leader and you're, you're good. And somebody goes, Oh wait, this easy Rick guy's coming and he's ahead of you on adjusted time. And we had backed off the pace where we were rock crawling wrecking ball like rock crawler style on wrecking ball and here comes easy rick skipping the top of the rocks like they were whoops and i had never seen anybody do it like my buddies greg hussey ways you know they were they were driving the rock trails fast this dude is on top of the rocks like they're like dirt whoops like who cares and i'm like oh my god and so we got passed by him and I was having some steering issues just about the same time. I could kind of feel that we were, you know, losing a pump or something was going on. And 
I'm driving along and then all of a sudden easy Rick's in front of us and he just turns 90 degrees and he's up off the course. And I'm like, whoa, well, as it turns out, he had the steering ram had ripped off of his car. So they weren't really ready to go through the rocks at that pace, but he was driving it at that pace. So he was over there repairing his rack. Well, we went like just past him, just around the corner and said, okay, now we're in front of him again. Let's figure out what's wrong with our steering. Well, Throughout all this time, there's a helicopter hovering over the top of the two of us. And we're like, go away, go away. Don't let Easy Rick know we're right here because we're literally like just around the corner on this rock. And all that had happened was my my ram had unscrewed the threads on the side of it and the oil started coming out. So we had oil in the car. We tightened that back up and filled it back up with fluid and we were good to go again. He was over there doing the same thing, you know, trying to tighten all this stuff up. But his rack had like come out of the mounts and was over to the side. And so, you know, we went on to win that race basically but you know that stuff like that that's happening in the race car now burgers like don't lose that pace that you have and get into a too comfortable of a driving condition you got to keep it up because there's going to be somebody that's coming in from the back like eric was last year with that with that crazy pace and so it's good to have him in there to keep that focus. Otherwise, I'd lose my focus. And I think you just slow down. Like you just, it's hard to keep yourself pushing at the pace you need to to win KOH the whole race. It's a, it's a hell of a challenge. You know what I mean? It's a sprint for six and a half hours. What is going on in your head that pushes you to drive at the pace that you drive? Is it, are you more of a fox or a hound? Are you? Well, it's way easier to be a hound. Like it's way easier, it's way easier to catch up to somebody because you've got them to pace against. And so being out in the front is hard because everybody's trying to catch you and all you're trying to do is not drive faster than you have to and break the car, right? There was a time when, and this just happened this week, we had a CrossFit workout that it was so hard and we put, I pushed so hard that everything in my mouth after the CrossFit workout tasted like almost like blood in my mouth, but there was no blood. It's just that your lungs are literally taxed to the point where we call it Fran lung. But I was like bleeding in the mouth after the workout in that, in that flavor. I used to have to get to that spot in the desert by driving that hard to think I was doing it right. Like I could taste blood in my mouth from beating myself that hard. Now that you don't have to do that. And now it's stupid to do that because you're going to break something, right? And the shocks are so much better. You don't do that. <laughs> but we used to just think that was what we had to do to be at like at the right pace. And, and now it's like this balance of like, you know, right at the stage where you're not going to make a mistake, I think is the thing because what is it? Five minutes for a good tire change on average. If everything goes right, you know, the jack doesn't fail. The lug nuts not, you know, so tight that the impact won't take it off and you're getting breaker bars out and the whole nine yards. That five minutes is so hard to make back up now. I mean, I think we only won by five or six minutes. So, you know, to, to think that like one flat tire, one, which is really re relates back to one mistake. That is so hard to keep yourself at the pace where you won't make a mistake over the course of that many miles and that many rock trails. It's a serious challenge. I think it's what makes it so cool. Well, there's a saying that says you can't win a race in a turn, but you can lose a race in a turn. And out there, it's you can't win a race over these rocks, but you can certainly lose it. Yep. And KOH still has an element that maybe doesn't exist in, in some of the other races, you know, lap races, maybe like at Parker or something. But, you know, when we hit lap three in the 4,400 class, there's a lot of people still on lap two and they're in the rock trails and, you know, they, they, they can be fast, but they had a problem on lap one. Something's happened that they're in the rocks, but they're usually they're a little slower because they're just on lap two when you're on lap three. That stuff's out of your control. You know, you can't, if they're in the rock trail and they're in front of you and they're having a problem or they roll over. I mean, it happened this year. We had a guy roll over on the line that we were following 
And, you know, we wanted to make the pass, but there's no good place to do it. So you're just running behind him until there's a good spot to make that pass. And he rolled over and we had to go back up and then take a really hard line and winch it to get around him. And that stuff's out of your control. That's where Berger's the best, like on the best guy in the lake bed to be in the passenger seat because he keeps you calm and says, hey, nothing we can do about it. Just let's go make the best decisions now based on what we've got in front of us. And he hops out and winches that line. And the next thing you know, you're back in the car and you're going. And yeah, I'm sure that the guy behind you caught up on adjusted time, but he's going to have his own battles. Now, once you've cleared the field, like once you're the first car and you're passing the guys that are on lap two, they know that fast cars are coming. And I think that it allows them to give you some more space for those people. But it's definitely easier to be second all the way up until like the last section of the third lap and, and then go, you know, it hasn't been the situation. We've qualified. We have five years in a row on the front row, which is kind of a crazy stat, you know, it's outstanding. It is wild. I put a lot of pressure on myself for qualifying. You know, it's the car is fast. And so it just does its thing out there. The, uh, the other thing that people might not know is that we have four podiums in a row at the hammers. And, you know, our drive for five on that is is pretty high. Like, I think that would be a stat, in my opinion, that'll be hard to, to match. You know, the attrition rate's around 80%. So for someone to get five podiums in a row, I think if we could pull that off, you know, even if we don't win, I want to win. I mean, that's what we're all there for. But if we got that podium position to show that the car was good, because, you know, like I said, those lappers can change stuff in the race, you know, have things just not go your way on race day that are out of your control. And... I wouldn't put that on ourselves, but if we could get that that fifth podium in a row, I don't know if anyone will ever do it. I, honestly, like it's so many things have to go right that we really want to capture that this year. Completely feasible and doable. That's what's so cool about having the conversation with you and that you can't have the conversation with necessarily the field. And I don't, I'm not knocking anyone in the field. There's some amazing people in the field that aren't going to finish. And then there's some people that are like, hey, I raced King of the Hammers this year and I left the start line and I raced against Jason Shearer and Shannon Campbell and Lauren Healy and, and that crowd. And that's cool enough. Well, yeah, that's what makes it such a great place to race. You know, you've got people with goals of finishing, which are still super good goals. Speaking of that, there's a stat that I didn't know. Do you know Eric Miller has the most King of the Hammers finishes? I didn't know that, but it, yeah. I completely believe that. I Right? I know, me too. Like, it's like not surprising, but it's pretty cool to know. He's got like nine. I think Shannon has eight, and I think we have seven or eight or something like that. So pretty cool. Yeah, that's... uh. Maybe it just says we've done it a long time. <laughs> well, there's also there's also that when you get this this old and this far into it. Do you have any No, I'm not going to say I'm not going to call them magical or marvelous or anything like that or top secret or any of that uh any gems to glean as to strategy that you guys are going to try to execute as we roll into uh the hammers? Um, I don't know that our game plan is any different than anybody else's per se, but you brought up something interesting. There's no top secret stuff, which, you know, there's only one guy that's really responsible for that. And it's Shannon, right? Shannon would tell any competitor what tire pressure he's running, what spring rate he's got on his car. There's no secrets from him. And and he's kept that open book, which changed the dynamic of King of the Hammers and Ultra Four from other forms of racing. Because you can go to the local short course track on a Saturday night and those guys will not tell you anything. No gear ratios in their trainees, rear ends, stagger tire pressures. You can't go get started in a Saturday night short course race somewhere with help from the other guys in the pits. If you walk into the Hammers and you want to learn about Ultra Four, there's not a guy there that won't tell you his secret sauce. And, you know, what you do with it's your own thing. But that 
openness to it has made it a group of friends who race against each other. And he started it. He's the reason it's that way. It's the rock crawling way. It was the same guys on the trail that had to get the guy in front of them that were broken and, you know, going so they could keep wheeling and everything. But he kept that. And it was always his attitude. He said one single thing. I don't, you know, his Shannon's words. I don't care if you have the same junk as me. We'll figure it out on race day. You know, and he always knew he was such a good driver. He could go out there and do that. So he didn't have to hold all the, you know, IP in his own head of, of what he was doing to make his car better. And it's pretty cool that one guy can be responsible for that. But it is him that, that changed that, I think, in our sport. And that's how he's in the Offroad Hall of Fame. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's cool that, you know, it's it's neat that we've gotten to be friends with him for 20 plus years, you know. So it's cool. Yeah, I've been only been blessed with being, you know, inside that circle for, you know, the last kind of five years or six years or so. And how the Campbells have always, you know, had a place for me out at the Hammers or at a race and let me hang out and bring my kid, my kids to, to play around uh, with that family. They're an amazing group. And it's what they've done to the environment. I'm going to call it the environment, the all encompassing environment that is uh, Ultra 4 racing is, you know, it's it's going to be felt for generations, I, I hope. Right. I, I know talking to like Lauren, Lauren said the day that Ultra 4 gets to be like the roundy round track by my house is the day I'm done. I'm hanging it up. I don't think it will, you know, I, and, and I say that, but I also worry, you know, what's going to happen when the big corporate sponsors do jump in and they've got engineers and then they don't want you to share that stuff. And we, I think is it's going to, it's going to take all of us saying, Hey, that's not this sport. If you wanted that, stay in the other sport, but we're not going to do that. We're going to, we're going to be faster than them by putting in the effort, but we're not going to hide out everything and put it behind a, you know, behind the trailer as soon as we get there. And it's been very cool to see guys in Ultra 4, pick, you know, starting to pick up those sponsors that are, I'm going to say, uh, you know, outside the genre, outside of, uh, yeah. outside of our, our community, outside of the, the industry. And we get a race this year that is sponsored by, did I see it right? Progressive Insurance is sponsoring one of the... Yeah, we got a non-edemic sponsor coming in. We've got Lauren and Vaughn have brought Ford in, uh, Brad Lovell. You know, the Ford's presenting the race for, for Ultra 4. They come on as a sponsor. Like, there is a lot of cool stuff happening. And I, I think it'll turn into a bit of a manufacturer war, which will progress the sport even more. And it's going to it's going to change a little bit that way because there will be some more teams. And, and who knows, maybe that will mean that there's just a different class of those guys that start racing that. But it's OK because it won't if we do it right and we keep it structured right, it won't lose the feeling of of who all the people and the teams and the, you know, the access to all the drivers and the pits and all that stuff. It'll always stay that way around the campfire kind of feel. But we got to make sure we keep it that way. Like we got to keep it that way between all of us, you know, and, and so it's our responsibility to carry that torch that way, too. And that said, I think it's, you know, I'm going to say it's your, your responsibility, you guys in the top 20s responsibility, the guys with the name drivers to make it down to the fire pit, make a pass yep. through, you know, yep. you know, shake the babies and kiss the hands. Yeah. And I mean, it's cool. Like the, <laughs> the last couple of years, you know, we, we won that race and we stood there. I stood there for hours signing autographs and hanging out with people and, and, you know, being there and being present. And at some point you do have to go eat. I realized I was crashing at like some point where my hands were starting to shake after sitting there for a few hours after the race. And I'm like, okay, the adrenaline wears off. It starts to get cold when the sun starts to go down and you're like, okay, I got to go change out of the, 
out of the Sparco suit and get something that's warmer and, you know, basically be able to go, you know, eat something and everything. But go back. We went back to the campfire. I think Adam took uh, my car up Chocolate Thunder that night, you know. So here's the car just 1KOH and he's out there partying and taking it up Chocolate Thunder. And people are like, didn't that car just win? And Adam's like, yeah, you know, and they're like, right right on, you know. (laughs) So So what's the future hold for Jason Shear? You know, KOH 2020 beyond it. Like, what do we what do we have going beyond it? You know what? Um, I think maybe five years ago or so, I thought that we had we had plateaued, and maybe that was my fault. But I thought, you know, I can't believe what's happened to it. When I said that, like in 2015, like it's amazing where we've come from and where it's at. If you told me it'd be here today and what I think it's going to be in five years, I wouldn't have believed it. It sounded like a fairy tale. It sounded like one of those promoters that we we saw in the early days of rock calling that said, you know, you'll be the next NASCAR. And it's like, dude, I don't think that that's even the the, the plateau. Like, I think we'll, it'll be better than that because people recreate with their families off road. They don't buy NASCAR trucks and go rate cars and race them. They, they go out there. This is where people want to go. And this is the pinnacle of that. And it draws everyone into it. It's the event that causes people to want to go out there and do it. I mean, there's more motorhomes at that place than there is at every race on the West Coast, you know, that I've ever seen. It's crazy what's going on out there. And they're diehard. They're cool people too, right? They're, they're taking their kids out there. They're in their UTVs, dirt bikes, Jeeps, you know, Broncos, all the stuff that's out there right now. They're in those and they're going out to the hammers and recreation and they're going out to Glamis and they're going out to these different places. And, you know, it's good for everybody because it doesn't matter if it's four wheel parts. People are like doing well in the industry because everyone's going out and doing this stuff. And those dads that are buying the, you know, the weekend warrior style campers and stuff and putting the dirt bikes in the back with their kids, they're good people, you know? And I think that there's been a lot of like land use issues over the years where you see all this stuff and it's like, Hey, these are the good people that are out there, you know, not the, they're not tearing stuff up. They're doing stuff with their kids and their families and, you know, having that family time. And it's like, that's, I think that's better for the world than all the other stuff. It does. It feels like we've worked out. We haven't worked out the land use issues. You know, the, the land use war is still going to be on and it's going to go on for generations, to be honest. But, you know, we here now we're trying to protect the public lands, keep them up open for the public. But as far as like KOH goes out there and it feels to me, it feels like it's like an adolescent, maybe post pubescence teenager. That's kind of the, the years. It feels like we're about to turn, make this turn into like the high school to college era of the age of the thing. And and it does. It feels like it's about to get really smart about itself and really smart about the world and not realize like how much it's been an infant up to this point. That's, that's what it feels like to me. It feels like we're really yeah, standing you know, and walking on our own two feet. It's pretty cool, too, because, you know, I think Dave's had a lot of people pull him in different directions. And he's done an amazing job of getting to that stage where we're at right now. And his vision of the future is good. Like Dave's made a lot of the right calls the last three or four years. I'll remember in like 2014 or something, he got sick and I was like, man, what's going to happen to all this stuff? And he came back, I think way more focused with a way better drive to take the sport to a way higher level than it was before, obviously. And and I don't, I think this is the tip of the iceberg on where it's going to go. So, you know, it took a lot of leadership and a lot of people. He's putting the right people in the right places now, and it's going to grow faster because of that. 
You know, I'll just say this. I think I think maybe if you had asked me five years ago if I would want my kids to do like the the path that Waylon Campbell and Bailey Campbell where they were going to, you know, be racers and do all that stuff. I was like, eh, I don't know. It's, you know, you spend a lot of money to go do it. I don't know if it's really going to be there. Now I'm like, yeah, it's a great career. You know, teach him to weld, teach him to fabricate, teach him to build his own stuff. Let him become a race car driver and do the off-road thing and go be as good as he can at it. You know, have that drive for it. It's a good, healthy place to be. You know, I don't think I would have felt that way five years ago. I think where it's headed right now, it's like, dude, you could have a factory ride and be a, a driver that has its own team out there for a long time and build a really good career coming up in the sport. You know what I mean? So that's pretty cool. Now we're seeing, you know, I saw out of the live show that kind of there's a kind of a glut of young guns coming out. You got, you know, Pellegrino, Cole. Well, Waylon and Bailey are still kids, you know, I mean, yeah, Bailey, Cam- Bailey Campbell and, and Bailey, Bailey Cole. Cole. Bailey Cole's a hell of a driver, dude. He doesn't get enough respect. It's so funny because it's because it's Dave's kid, you know. Right. It, well, he walked, he walked out on the stage the other night and uh, Dave's talking to him, giving him hell about what races are you even racing and what cars are you even in? And he's got a beard and he just looked dirty. Like I was like, who is that guy? That's Bailey Cole. Like I didn't even recognize him almost. It was uh, such a good kid. But then you've got a Gomez. There's a. Uh, oh, yeah. Darian. Yeah. Darian. So. Yeah. Flacco. I love that kid. And then, of course, we know, you know, Eric Miller and Lee, they just had a baby. So he should be winning KOH in what? 18 months more? I mean, <laughs> maybe. I don't know. I think I won. I won mine when my daughter was like that, you know, like right in that, that area, probably the year after. So, yeah, he's getting close. I mean, he, you know, he'll know, he know we'll win another one. It's kind of just a matter of time with all of those, all those kids. But, you know, like Wayland's fast and, and Very. you know, that era, I think it's cool that it's set up this way. It's not in other sports. You don't get to the top level until you've kind of achieved some, you know, milestone. And you saw those things where it's like, you know, Dan Hart passes away and the next thing you know, it's Jeff Gordon era and then it's Jimmy Johnson era and then it's all this stuff. Well, I think we're set up the same way, right? Like, you know, eventually, I mean, I don't know how long Shannon and every, you know, Shannon and then me and then some other guys, how long can we keep going? I feel like we can keep going for quite a while, but then it's going to be the Eric Miller era and then, you know, or, or who knows, it could be next but year but or this year, but whatever. Like Levi's in there. Levi's, a, Levi's that age, be, right? you know, yeah. And, and you just keep looking at this list of these great drivers and there's there's a whole group of them coming up through the charts, you know, and uh, it's going to be hard to keep out running them because they are so fast, you know, and I think off roads the only sport that has this experience is still just a hair better than twitch reflex. So that quick reaction time that you might have is still not quite as good as the as the experience. And the, and the, the experience has two parts. It's one, how it's going to be in the race, in the race car. But two, when you pre-run, after you've pre-run for years and years and years and years, you get better at reading terrain and remembering things. So you have to train yourself to be a better terrain learner and that only comes with time. It's not something you can just get quickly. You can't just remember everything your first time out there when you see some new stuff. After you've done it for a long time and every year you get a chip and you go, here's your time to go run the desert. You have a week until the race. You remember it better as you've got more experience from learning how to how to go out there and do that. People used to look at Slauson as this is Slauson's backyard. He's the favorite just because he knows this all of Johnson Valley, like the back of his hand. But now again, Miller's in, you know, Cumberland, Maryland, and you're in Northern California. The fact is the course, even though it's different every year, we've ran the same areas enough times for 10 years. If you're an old goat, you kind of know what's over that rise, or you know what boulders are over that turn. 
you do. They've done a great job of keeping it fresh. You know, I mean, I don't feel like we've had too many years of real. We've had a few where they were kind of regurgitated. Hey, it's same race course backwards. And you're like, okay. But uh, Mark Matthews is the guy that does a lot of that. And, and he puts in the effort to go find a goat trail to connect this one. I think this year there's four new trails that we've never run before. And you're like, okay, that's a lot. Like in the mix of things, that's a lot. And who knows the flow and the direction and where they're going to take us. But, you know, that area had mining roads that went to one little thing. And what happens is they take one little mining road that was barely beaten in and then they make it the race course. And after pre-running in the race, it's like a full established road and it's all new. And I love new, like to me, finding something new is the best, like that fresh terrain and learning it and then trying to be the best in that new fresh terrain is actually like my favorite thing to kind of get, because if it's all regurgitated and everyone knows it, it's actually hard to find an advantage. But if you can learn it better and be quicker on it on your first and then your second try, you know, you, you get an advantage there. JT was here at my house. Uh, he spent Christmas with us just a few weeks ago, and we had this very in-depth discussion about these four trails. And funny thing, he told me where they were. He told me the names that they had called them, and I still couldn't t- pick out where they are on a map. So I'm really of no good use on that. <laughs> but he did say, we've got to get some traffic on them. They're not really race ready. So I, I think that's going to come. I mean, yeah. they've alluded yeah. to it. Yeah. And I mean, we've, we've made that mistake maybe in the past too, like the experience thing, like we've been the first guys out to go pre-run, you know, Elvis and different trails over the years and totally different on race day because after it's been run by a bunch of people and then the EMC class, you know, the course looks different. So you really need to go run it and then run it again, you know, so you really know what it's going to look like. And that, that stuff is, uh, and that's the work KOH week for us is, a, is work. I mean, we are up at the crack of dawn and out there pre-running and putting in the effort and it's, you know, long days and a lot of them and, and they're back to back. I get people like, Hey, let's, uh, let's go do a photo shoot Monday at noon. You're like, no, I can't. Like I, Monday's a day I can pre-run. We have to be out there pre-running because the race does come first on all that stuff. And so, you, you know, you don't want to say no to anybody, but at the same token, like you got a job to go do and to perform on it. And so we work really, really hard at it. I don't think it's any different than like Rob Mack pre-running in, the, in Baja. Like he works at it. He puts in the effort to get the homework done so that when he goes out there in the race, he's ready for it. Now everybody's doing it. I saw Cameron Steele, when we were uh, pre-running for the thousand this year, they have helicopters now for the pre-run, so the helicopter can be above them and see the good lines, so that they can find them faster than going out and running every single line. And I'm like, wow, where is this going? You know, like, <laughs> what's the limit on this stuff? I don't think there is a limit, and kind of thank God. Uh, yeah, it's your creativity, you know. I love it. Well, Jason, did we cover everything you wanted to cover? Absolutely. Jason, man, thank you so much for coming on the talent tank. I hopefully I'm standing there with you, you know, you know, getting some drizzle of some uh, champagne, you know, a little blow by there. Uh, you know, can pull off uh, unprecedented five podiums, three in a row. And I don't know, that sounds wild to even say out of my mouth. But yeah, that would be cool. I'd be happy to happy to do it. With you. you have to think that way. Otherwise, no doubt. I have no doubt you're fully capable. It's uh, your, your race to lose again. Thank you for coming on the Talent Tank and uh, sharing so much insight, sharing your history. I gleaned a whole bunch of things about you that I did not know prior to uh, this call. Man, awesome. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate you having me on and, uh, you know, look forward to seeing you out there. Yeah, just a few weeks. It's only a few days away. I know. Stoked. All right, All right man. Thanks, buddy. We'll catch you later. We're out. I'd like to thank the sponsor of this episode, 
the Jesse Combs Foundation. For more information about their organization, please visit their website at www.thejessiecombsfoundation.com. Thank you for listening and taking a dive into The Talent Tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at The Talent Tank or our website, thetalenttank.com.